1: Hey guys, I'm Sai, and welcome to Ace Podcast Nation. On the channel we've got podcasts, interviews and series on all sorts of subjects including mental health, football, MMA and boxing, serial killers, f- f- films and TV, conspiracy theories, wrestling, music and more. All of our shows are available in video format at youtube.com slash nation Please subscribe as uh, that's the best way to support the channel. Uh, we also have audio versions of every single uh, show that we do. You can find them at all the usual podcasting platforms and apps and radio apps, whether it's uh, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn uh, TuneIn Radio app, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, far too many to go through all of them. But, uh, yeah, you'll be able to find it on your favourite podcasting app. Every Monday, we do a live football show, 7.30, which is the Andy Campbell Championship Show, uh, where myself and former Cardiff City and Middlesbrough striker Andy Campbell, normally we would go through the kind of championship games as well as talking the biggest stories in the football world but there is no football on at the moment as we all know so uh, at the moment we're kind of reviewing some old games we're talking the latest news we're having guests doing a quiz just uh, all sorts of good stuff always fun and uh, we had a good couple of thousand join us uh, on monday which was good Uh, this monday or this past monday when this show goes out we have uh, daily telegraph journalist and author harry harris joining us. He's written books on some of the biggest names in football of all time, Glenn Hoddle, Rude Hullett. Uh, He's also written an investigative book on the death of Cardiff City striker uh, Emiliano Sala, which uh, is a really, really interesting book and uh, asks some very important questions. So it's going to be good to have him come on on, uh, Monday in the live show so he can take questions. And uh, obviously, he's uh, bringing out an extended version very soon, which has got twice the amount of information and uh, a lot of new questions. Every Wednesday, we have the Danny Button Fight Show, where myself and former Cage Warriors champion uh, Danny Button we break down the weekend's boxing and MMA usually, but again, there's no current events on currently, so uh, we just review and break down some classic events. Last week, we broke down uh, Joe Calzaghi versus Bernard Hopkins, UFC 4, and uh, Henzo Gracie versus Sakuraba from Pride 10. Uh, this past Wednesday, then we uh, talked Eubank versus Ben, Royce Gracie versus Sakuraba, and uh, Royce Gracie versus Sakaraba two and UFC five. Uh, so, if you need a combat sports fix, that's the place to be every Wednesday. And then Friday, we have a live adult-only comedy show with stand-up comedian uh, Ballistic Barry Phillips, talking about the the goings-on in the world and the news. Uh, and then on the weekend, to finish off the week, we have Saturday's a wrestling, uh, weekly wrestling show with post-wrestling journalist Andrew Thompson providing the analysis. And then every Sunday, we drop a, a new episode of either our series, Unscripted and Uncensored, which is one like today. Or we also have My Story, where we take athletes and former fighters or our actors through their careers and uh, go through that. Or just brand new guests and interviews. We have uh, new shows all the time at least four every week, Uh, we truly have podcasts or series for everyone, no matter what your interest is, and uh, we've usually, 99.9% of the time, got true experts in their field breaking down the action or the subject that we're talking about, whether it's footballers, doctors, fighters, whatever the subject we talk about, I do like to get someone who knows what they're talking about to discuss it with, because I don't know what I'm talking about, I'd, uh, I just rattle on about nothing and I let the leave the experts for the analysis. Today's show is something a little bit different instead of the usual format where I'll do you know research and I'll prepare questions for my guests or we'll do different things. This is episode number 14 of Unscripted and Uncensored. What that means is I have no real run through. I just paste all the questions into my little document by here. And uh, we just go through everything. It's completely unedited, no censors. You can talk about anything, say anything. You can say what you want, basically. Uh, We just talk. I get some talking points, some subjects or some questions sent in by people from social media. They can email it, direct message on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. It's always a lot of fun. Usually goes off the rails and definitely goes off on random tangents. And we'll be talking about some crazy random thing before we know it but it always always is a lot of fun so joining me to dip into that random world of unscripted and uncensored today is a former pro pro boxer in his own right a boxing trainer and media personality white sugar ben doherty welcome ben how are you my friend
0: i'm good simon i I just i I hate to correct you at the start but in actual fact i was was never actually a professional boxer a lot of people think Uh, i was and some people try to expose me on that basis saying I've checked box and he's not on there. Because w- when you rise to any kind of level of, I don't know, little bit of social media prominence, you get enemies. And some people try to say he's a fraud. But the thing is, I, I had 38 amateur fights, Simon, of which I'm proud of. There, there is, I-, I was supposed to turn pro in 1991 insofar as I signed the forms. I went off the rails a bit, which we can have, we can talk about or not talk about. But just so I'm not, get, you don't get avalanches of people saying he's a fraud, he's a liar. I'm going to clarify that right at the start. I, I was a a veteran of 38 amateur fights and never punched for pay but i'm good mate thank you for
1: having me okay no i but you know what i appreciate that honesty straight away because you know at the end of the day you could have just kind of left it and not said anything i i, I can appreciate that i like that that's a good <laughs> start but uh yeah how are you how are you finding the uh the current situation in the world it's a bit strange as we're uh, going about our business
0: I have to say I haven't found it too bad so far because first of all uh, I've not had any you know personal tragedies although I do know people you know people I know quite well who've had close family members die you know and I also know I don't know what it is Simon but I notice people are dying of other things right now as well like I've, there's been a few tragedies which are unrelated and some of them are related to COVID-19 and uh, so I feel for a lot of people but I must be honest I'm having a Feel a bit of a guilty, but I'm having a good run of it. I mean, I'm getting on with creative projects, like yourself, no doubt, and I'm I'm feeling quite inspired at the minute. I, there is there is a positive flip side to it. Obviously, we wish it wasn't happening, but I think you know there is a bit of a reset about life. The the rat race has ground to a halt, hasn't it? There is a nice, there is a quite a good community spirit amongst people, which there always is in adversity. I've gotten a few things finished, which I wouldn't do when I'm running around in my day to day life. You know, jumping on and off London transport. Doing training sessions and classes and whatnot, so I'm actually I'm using the time quite well and I'm I'm not having too bad of a time of it. But obviously, I don't we don't know when it's going to end. And I, you know, it is it is a little bit rough certain aspects of it because I think you can get cabin fever, you know.
1: Yeah, I think um, from a positive positive outlook of it for me personally, there's kind of three things which I I wouldn't say enjoying about it, but like you say, three things which I'm taking as a positive slant on it. And I think one is my one, my garden is full, full of nature. It's full of birds. It's full of yeah. bees and things. Which I've I gotta say that I've noticed over the last couple of years is I get less and less at this time of year and in the summer than what I would normally have. And I would assume that's a lot to do with things like pollution and traffic and yeah. you know, all these different things. And where everything is ground to a halt, all these birds are coming back and I, I I really enjoying that. You know, I have to sit outside yeah. and have my coffee in the morning, and there's birds everywhere. Um, like, I'm an early riser, so it doesn't bother me. I know um, my teenage son is not so enthusiastic about the uh, the birds chirping at 5 a.m. in the mornings. But, you know, and, um, the other two yeah. things is, um, one, I am recording so many podcasts. It's unreal, and shows and videos, because, w- one... I'm not having to you know take my sons to football or to the school or my wife's to work and all the you know the day to day stuff which you have to do and this that and the other um so like as soon as I've done everything which I need to do with my kids in the day, like schoolwork and that I'm kind of spending a bit of time with them and then going to do you know podcasts yeah. or contacting guests and i'm also then the other side of it I get people who perhaps wouldn't be necessarily available. Uh, obviously at home and looking to yeah. pass an hour here and there so they're a bit easier to get hold of or a bit easier to get on the show which is you know it's great for me personally um yeah and you know like you say the third is um I particularly when my children were young uh, I used to bemoan having to go to the office to work and I felt like I was always missing out on on you know, like yeah, things, like first step, first words, all these things which you, you know, you miss out because you're in work. Um, so I'm trying to look at it, this positive thing that, you know, I've got this time with my kids day in, day out. Now, that's not to say that there's some days they haven't driven me insane and yeah. I feel like I'm really struggling, but I'm trying to look at it with a positive outlook. Obviously, with the COVID-19, it's, it's difficult, isn't it? Like, up until probably the last couple of weeks, I, I kind of knew like a friend of a friend of a friend who people who had been affected by it. But in the yeah. last month, there's been people who I know personally who've become infected, or members of their yeah. family have been infected, which is it really hits home then because that's like just very close to home, obviously. Um, there's someone who I used to work with, someone who's uh, you know good friends with, one of my best friends who sponsors the shows. Um, and he was in a, an induced coma and things like this, and it's it's difficult to get away from it then, isn't it? Because, you know, you're, it's on the news constantly, but when it affects yeah. people who you know personally, it becomes very real very quickly, I think. Yeah. Uh, right. So, like I say, I appreciate you coming on, mate. I, I, you know, I, I even though we're in lockdown, I appreciate that, you know, you're still busy, you've got things to be doing yourself and getting on with in your own projects. Uh, so what I like to do at the start of these shows, before we put you in the, in the hands of the people and we see where they get our conversations to go, um, what I like to do is first I'd like to have you basically tell us a bit about yourself, um, you know, kind of your upbringing, how you got to where you are today. And then after that, I'll ask you kind of 10 quickfire questions where you just say the first thing which comes into your mind, and what that does is it just gives people who are maybe not familiar with you, uh, you know, just a, a little feel for you and your your interests and things.
0: Sure. Okay, Simon. So well, my any kind of social media prominence I've got is based on boxing. So I mean, the relevance of that. I grew up in uh, Cotswolds in Stroud in Gloucestershire. I started boxing at the age of ten. And uh, I got really into it. I know one of the questions suggested to me from, from a friend of mine was, at what point did it become an obsession? And to be honest, it, I started boxing at 10 and got obsessed with it uh, immediately in terms of reading all the books and becoming a, a know-it-all historian at the age of like 11 and all the rest of it. But um, as far as I was concerned, that was a life I wanted to live. And I, I put a lot of pressure on myself telling everybody I was going to go to the Olympics in 1988 and stuff like that. But um, to cut a long story short, when I was about um, – when I was uh, – went. Something happened that took me off the, 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 the righteous path of, of a kind of athletic, um, you know, healthy life to an extent. I, went, I left home when I was 18 after the, the way that t- teenagers rowed their parents and sometimes leave acrimoniously, I left shortly after the A-levels at the family home. And um, while I was sleeping on friends' floors for a bit and looking to get myself a place and a job, having, having left school after the sixth form, I went to see Guns N' Roses at Donington Rock Festival in 1988. And for some reason, I got kind of, um, you know, uh, arrested by the charisma of um, of Axel Rose and Slash on stage and this idea of being a rock and roll band all the rest of it. And I kind of went off the rails for, in a sense, I mean, I got myself a job and got myself a flat, but I went on my travels for a bit. I went to America when I was 20 years old, you know, looking to, to live that rock and roll dream. Started, started in New York. But then I began uh, roadieing for. I uh, ended up in Colorado and started roadieing for a band there, who kind of took me in as one of their own. And I s- started to learn to play guitar and sing the odd s- song on stage with a band. So I kind of pursued that journey for a bit, and I didn't really work a straight job for must have been about ten years. You know, I I've d- I've played in bands and stuff like that. I uh, didn't go near the gym. Um, experimented with drugs and got myself into a few problems uh, there with with all that. That's all part of that mythology as well. And I, I didn't find my way back into boxing until I was in New York in 2002, tail end of 2002. I had a girlfriend back in London who I was living with in the Clerkenwell, Angel, Islington kind of area, who liked boxing. And we'd started to go to a few shows in in London, uh, which I, I hadn't been for years. And I found how much I'd missed the scene. And I um, still knew a lot of people in the scene and recognised a lot of people. So then we, we went to New York, long story short. We went to see the second Arturo Getty-Mickey Ward fight, which is, to be fair, it's probably the least classic of the whole t- classic trilogy, but it was, still a, it was still an amazing fight, and it was something which kick-started me back into the boxing. So having seen that fight in Atlantic City on November the 23rd, 2002, I walked into Gleason's gym on uh, the, mo- the Monday afterwards, and uh, Paul Melanagi, who you probably be known to you these days, it, at the time he was an unknown kid who was 12 and 0, who who boxed on the undercard of that show, and I'd seen him and recognised him from that. And we had a chat. I said, you know, saw your box like your star, man. And sort of struck up a friendship. And um, when I started training, I, uh, long story short, I, I started sparring with, with some of the pros in there, including Malinagi. Now, what, one of the things that goes on with some of my social media detractors is Paulie doesn't remember me. I've met him since on the circuit. And he doesn't remember me because I look different. I had hair, all the rest of it. And he just doesn't remember. But... um some people say I made it all up. You know, this you can find words tw- on Twitter saying, "Oh, you know, he's just a serial liar." But the thing is, I-, I can't do anything about it, and Madeline, I can't prove it. But I sparred Malinaji, a few other guys like Dimitri Salito, uh, Vivian Harris, whatnot. I had amateur fight out there uh, at the gym in Brooklyn. They- they'd have gym shows actually in Gleason's gym, and I-, I lost on points. But because I hadn't been in a ring for over twelve years, I was, I was. It was a close fight, and some people thought I won it. The way people said, "Oh, you, you won that, mate. You, you know, you got robbed." But I, I felt good to be back, you know. So uh, I, I came back to London not too long after that, and had a few more amateur fights for the Angel Boxing Club in in Islington. And then I went into training. Uh, I did a year of coaching at Angel. Then I went to the famous Repton in Bethnal Green for three years. After that, I went to a commercial gym, like a white collar type gym, uh, where I met Spencer Fearon, who's quite well known in the whole boxing social media loop and until recently worked for sky and he's it, and one of those kind of charismatic faces of the scene and uh it was after that that i stopped training the amateurs and got a professional license to train fighters and you know, I've, I've worked with a few over the years to be honest with you i've grown away from it a little more i i didn't realize the power of social media until it happened really to be honest with you i i, I, I took spencer's lead to an extent i saw he was filming himself with his phone and, and broadcasting straight to youtube Because we were in the gym and because I was in the gym with quite a few well-known fighters, I suddenly realised you could make media content out of nothing. I remember the trailblazers trailblazers were IFL TV. They were at the press conferences interviewing fighters and trainers and whatnot when nobody else was doing it. And uh, obviously they've become absolutely massive and I think they deserve that and they've done a a fantastic job and they've spawned a thousand imitators. But um, for me, I kind of followed that direction a bit more. And organically, I was less of a trainer really. more of a social it was more about pt and the social media side of it you know at one point i worked for boxing social and think i did quite a lot to help launch that company and um and i've kind of pressed on with it you know i've had my trials and tribulations over the years but i basically i basically forged a path you know a path on my own really with with a mixture of training uh boxing reportage, interviews uh, and whatnot
1: yeah i think you're right about social media there um obviously like these days you don't have to uh have all the video equipment and all the cameras and the you know and a whole crew to make content you know as we're doing now you know it's yeah. it's me and you and you can get graphics and you like i've got all i've got is some lighting and a, a webcam and a laptop basically yeah um, and you can make you know you can make content which looks looks good um and as long as the content's interesting uh, and you know the, it's well done. People will watch it. You don't have to have those, uh, you know, the camera crews which you would have had to have had you know fifteen twenty years ago. Social media has changed yeah. the game. Uh, for it's me, been empowering. It's it's been empowering. It
0: and I think what it what it's what it's shown to me is if you have something to say and you can attract enough people who are interested in what you have to say and what you have to contribute, then you're up and running really. Because it's like the Facebook. My, my Facebook page became popular probably within about 18 months. I remember I was always trying to replicate what Spencer Fearing had achieved with getting loads of comments on boxing-related threads. And I'd get six men and a dog if I was lucky commenting at first because that's just the way things are until you until you, you, know, you keep plugging away. And then I remember the thread that blew up for me was about should Sylvester Stallone be inducted into the Hall of Fame? So God bless Sly for that yeah. for the controversy around it because I just noticed my phone was beeping away and I had a couple of hundred comments and I thought, OK, this is what I was trying to achieve. And to be honest with you, as far as Facebook goes, I've never really looked back since then. Now, the thing with Facebook, you can't monetize it directly, but you can, but it monetizes in a variety of other ways because I found that Facebook, it gave me that credibility and it gave me that, those connections of people on both sides of the Atlantic in boxing. It's allowed me to, to do a lot of things, including big fight trips uh, across the pond and to Monte Carlo or Dusseldorf, whatever, and it, it's kind of made me somebody to an extent in, to where people recognise you as, but supposedly being an authority. And uh, and it, and it was you know, it was it was something that it's self empowering. You know, it's something that I've become friends with guys like Tim Witherspoon, and it wouldn't have happened without social media. So I think there are negative aspects to social media, and, and I think there are things that the hardcore fans miss about the old school class of BBC coverage or HBO coverage. And the idea that any fool can't just yell whatever comes into his goddamn head, mm-hmm. as long as he got it, and he might be called a Howard Davies or something, you know, or Tyson Fury at that moment. But I think in the old days, stars, moderate stars or big stars, they only spoke, and you only heard them if the media wanted to ask them something and wanted to broadcast their response. Now anybody has that power, don't they? Whether they're a star oh, yeah. or whether they're a marginal figure, we all have that same technically that that lowest common denominator broadcasting. Um, Opportunity, which you know, it's been good and bad, no doubt. But I, I'll be honest, Simon, I wouldn't go back. As much as I may prefer boxing the way it used to be in the nineteen eighties when I go up, and I and I could justify to, to you a whole bunch of reasons why I think it was a better, healthier scene. I wouldn't go back because I love I love the ability and the power of you know to communicate on social media more than I love checking results on teletext, you know, or mm-hmm. waiting for boxing news to come out sometimes before you even knew who won a fight, you know.
1: Yeah, oh, definitely, like social media. Uh, like you say there's a lot of negatives a lot of negatives to it uh, I had my first troll the other day for the podcast where someone was targeting the page with, with comments and abuse yeah. and in the end I like I I private messaged them as well and I said look you know whatever your issue is I'm happy to discuss but um, I don't really want it on the podcast page so can you, yeah. can you not do it ah. and they, they basically said I'm going to keep doing it you're going to have to ban me and I was like well I've got like nearly 9,000 followers. I don't really want, I've never had to ban anyone from the page. I welcome everybody's opinion as long as it's respectful. Um, I don't really want to go down that route and I was, you know, trying to diffuse it or whatever and they were like, no, no, no I'm going to keep doing it and, and so I left it and then they did it again so I had to, I had to ban them and I I thought, well, all right, whatever. It's, it's, it's the negative side to it. Unfortunately, people, there's, there is a, a large number of people, particularly on Twitter I find, who seem to throw Oh it's toxic on... as
0: fuck Twitter, isn't it?
1: Oh yeah, Twitter it's is, is toxic as hell. Twitter. I am, I used to spend a lot of time on Twitter just on my personal account, just talking to friends. Yeah. And I've met I've met some some of my couple of my best friends I met through Twitter. Um but they and i i've got a couple of other lads who i met through twitter who i'm really you know good friends with they've helped me through some tough times like just through chatting on dms and you know they've sorted my head out and stuff but the the negativity so now i only really use it to promote the podcast because i just can't handle it the the cancel culture is the thing which really gets to me because it's like this thing that uh it's like you can't make a mistake. Or if you do make a mistake, that means you've got to lose everything. Your marriage, your, your job, do, your car, do, well, you know, just do you know,
0: it's funny, Simon, I was talking about this today, right? Because we've seen people get hung out to dry on Twitter for a silly broadcast. Like we had the Billy Joe Saunders thing recently. You've got the Devin Haney gate where he said, I'd never lose to a white boy and people are up in arms. Now, I, do think people, I do think social responsibility is a part of it. And I think that words can be damaging it because in terms of the thought patterns they might lead to, and the behaviours that might lead to. But to be honest with you, I was thinking, I don't know if you've noticed or you've seen it, but there was a recent, recent-ish documentary, sorry, not documentary, a drama, a kind of serialised drama about Carlos Monzon and the murder of his wife. Uh, the Great Argentine... It's on my list middle- to watch. It, it, I would recommend it, although it's—I mean, it's there is elements of faction about it. I mean, it's probably romanced a lot, and whether it, if somebody knew a lot about the case, I suspect they'd be picking holes in it all the time. Or they knew a lot about Monzen's career, but it is—I do think it's very, very, very good viewing. And I was thinking, you know, Monzen. I always thought Monzen killed his wife in 1988, several years retired because they had a drunken argument and they were rowing on the balcony of a of an apartment in Mar del Plata in in Argentina, and I thought they both fell off the balcony. He was pushing her yeah. on whatever, and the balcony gave way. What seems more likely, certainly the preferred version of events that you will read about and what you'll see depicted very much, very graphically in the Netflix series, is he strangled her to death in rage because she, she wouldn't bend to his will or she was trying to... She was telling him he'd never see his kid again, and she was trying to get more money out of him, whatever. So he's killed her by strangulation, supposedly. Then he's thrown her off the balcony, um, we're encouraged to believe. And he's at some point, he's, he's dove off the balcony himself to try and make it perhaps look like a mutual fall. Mm. You know, he's probably in some kind of alcoholic blackout, perhaps. Yes. But what I was thinking was Carlos Monzon is still highly revered, especially in boxing circles. you know, His reputation hasn't suffered at all in boxing circles. There's reasonable evidence that he was possibly a serial spousal abuser. He definitely appears to have murdered his his wife Alicia Muniz, but nobody minds, nobody cares. And I was saying to a mate of mine today, who was, I said, you know, we compartmentalize, you know, with this kind of thing. But in today's era, I mean, Billy Joe is being hung out to dry. He's had his license suspended for making a very tasteless, silly video saying, "All right, lads." If if the missus is give, if her indoors has given you any earache, this is how you hit her: you right cross, mm. dip, left hook. Now, don't get me wrong; I think it was silly, and I know Billy Joe quite well. I consider him a friend, and I, when I speak to him about it, I would say, "Have you got rocks in your head or something? How can you not know that was going to, you know, was going to yeah. rebound very badly on you?" But what I'm saying is, there's no perspective. Carlos Monzon is still utterly revered, um, and it's really not a thing that he, that he was a, a murderer and a supposed be a, a sexual abuser. Whereas today, like you say on Twitter. I mean, Umar from IFL TV, what did he say? that They dug up old tweets of him calling Tyson Fury a crackhead when he was probably about 15 and he was being a bit of a troll himself and and he, he got taken off the channel from that. I don't know if he's back in this. This would be the ideal time to bring anyone back, I'd imagine. You know, when they talk about yeah, when yeah. you bury news, you know, and it's this is when you release you know, things you don't, you don't want people to, to uh, take any notice of. But, you know what I mean? Yeah, like you said, cancel culture. It seems out, out of all proportion, doesn't it? Oh, God,
1: yeah. I am... Um absolutely ecstatic that there is when I was 13 to say 19 there was no such thing as the internet camera phones and social media because I would have never been able to get a job anywhere because I said stupid shit all the time I did stupid shit all the time I was fighting I was drinking doing plenty of other things which I shouldn't have been doing Um. And I was saying offensive, horrible stuff. As a kid, I didn't really grasp, or I didn't grasp the meaning of words and what you know, how they can affect other people, how they can affect people, what words mean historically. It's it's kind of one of those things. So I'm ecstatic about it, and it does bring a whole new uh, aspect to to parenting as well. I think like I've got two teenage boys, and then another one who's eleven. Um, And I've got to not only Like you've got to bring them up And try and make them into You know to grow up to be good human beings Good men, respectful Treat women the right way etc But also you've got to Also teach them to Protect themselves on social media From shady You know dodgy people Who are targeting teenage boys and girls On social media and different apps Then you've got to also teach them that once you put something on the internet it's there forever it's there for good even if you <laughs> delete it yeah because
0: the, like the Danny Baker thing the Danny Baker thing which had him yeah. get, uh you know d- put in the long grass after he was had that very successful radio show but i mean I, I i thought that was bizarre once again i mean you scratch your head again and think well how could you have done that and how could you not have known but it but i remember him deleting it and obviously it doesn't make any difference because people have got it at that point yeah no.
1: yeah and i think like I find it like going back to uh umar i find it I find it really problematic if we're gonna start holding thirteen fourteen fifteen year olds accountable for stuff they said when they were fifteen when they're then twenty five and they're you know in a job yeah. just because they've worked hard and got a really good job or they've you know they've come to prominence, but then yeah. we're gonna kind of make them lose that because they said some stupid shit when they were fifteen. I find that really problematic because there's not one person on this planet who's never made a mistake. There's not one person who didn't do stupid shit when they were younger, whether it was saying something or doing yeah. something. It's it's part of growing up. The 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 best way to learn is to learn from mistakes rather than someone telling you, you know, this is how you do something. You learn so much yeah. more about yourself, about growing up and about things if you try it for yourself and make a mistake. Now you know, it, it kind of is what it is I wanted to pick your brain actually. something you mentioned uh, about the boxer uh, what's his name Devin Devin Haney yeah. yeah Devin Haney so this was uh, it was quite ironic for, for me personally and for us as a channel because last uh, on last week's Danny Batten show which came out yesterday um, we did the Joe Galzaghi versus Bernard Hopkins yes. fight and the week before we did the Roy Jones Jr. fight so in the Bernard Hopkins uh, build up I didn't realize at the time because it was so long ago for me I would, like I was a kid really when it uh, when the fight yeah. took place um, in the build up Bernard Hopkins said the same thing or if not the same you know something along the same lines yeah. if not was said word, this, exactly the same thing um, now when me and Danny discussed it like I don't have a problem really with what either of them said in terms of boxers say stuff to to hype fights to to, yeah. you know, to hype themselves I've got no problem with that my my kind of issue with it, I suppose, is if Joe Calzaghe had said the reverse, he probably would have been suspended and this, that and the other. And I just think that that's like a bit hypocritical, because to me, I've said this uh, a lot recently, is, is racism is racism. Regardless of what race has said the racist thing, it's still racism. If you discriminate against someone because of the colour of their skin, then it's racism you discriminate against someone because of their gender is whatever it is but
0: But, i'm a little bit different on that i I don't understand it but to me that's the obvious logic but i'm a little bit different on that because first of all that is just a black american cultural thing some people said oh that's a cop-out but i don't here's my thing if you've ever been to any american gyms uh, uh, urban gyms that are full of black and latin fighters they don't expect certainly white american guys to be able to fight because they haven't Nobody has significantly been able to do that since Kelly Pavlik. And, bef- and even that, they're few and far between Ray Mancini. And to go to a rich talent pool of white American fighters, wherever they were from ethnically, you know, generations before, you'd have yeah. to go back to the days of Marciano and LaMotta, or, you know, or the golden 20s like Benny Leonard and Jack, you know, Jack Berg, and that kind of era. Mm-hmm. So they've, they've had a, a long-running joke in America, so before the Eastern European uprising, but when, they, when more of them were allowed to turn professional, they had this kind of almost never bet on the white guy that was a running joke yeah. in America for a long time. Certainly, they thought black fighters fight differently in a different style, the Afro American kind of style with more rhythm. And you're kind of, you know, Muhammad Ali, Sugar Leonard influenced, and, and then evolving through to Ford Mayweather and his shoulder roll and all the rest of it. So, there are certain cultural presumptions about white fighters and black fighters in America, certainly. More so than there is over here, where we've got more of a kind of melting pot, I think, because we're a smaller country. So you will find that if you're a white guy in the gym, and I've experienced it myself, they don't expect you to be, to be able to hold your hands up. If you can, and you, and you, you, you take your lumps and you quit yourself well in sparring and you show that you've got the skills, then they'll warm to you. But they will – I mean, one guy actually said to me when I was training in New York, he said, I see your spar the other day. He said, you don't fight like a white guy. you got some skills, B. And, and I appreciated it and got a kick out of it. But that, that is where they're coming from, you know. Now, yes, yeah. when people say it's racism, it's obviously, to be honest, it's just very misguided for him to say it because Vassal Lomachenko would beat him, uh, you know, ten times out of ten, I believe. Uh, unlike, you know, his uh, claim to the opposite. But uh, because white Russians are different to what the, the white American male probably has generally gone soft and lost the plot as far as boxing goes. Decades ago, I think there's massive amount of evidence for that. But don't don't play these white Russians and Ukrainians cheap because because they are probably the boxing superpower right now if you go da- down through the divisions and the reasons for that are obvious you know and it is cultural people who are races do seem to go through generic trends of when they're harder and more working class and more pugnacious as a race we've seen it with the jews and the italians you don't see great jewish fighters anymore but you're used to you know so anyway what i would say is do you think it's racist when black people say we can't dance you know white people can't dance or you know you're, not, you're no. trying but you guys you so to be honest with you, that I feel that prejudice that white guys can't fight based on why Bob Arum said it once to uh, an American boxing magazine called KO Magazine. He said, you magazines are out of touch. You don't realize the, um, the talent which is waiting to break through from the, behind the Iron Curtain. And it will happen, he said, in the next 15, 20 years. He said, you keep saying that white guys can't fight. He said, white American guys can't fight. White Russian guys can. And, and that's what it comes down to. But but their prejudice that oh I'd never lose to a white boy. I've, I mean I'm not trying to come on like I'm some honorary black guy or anything like that. But I have lived in Harlem. I have lived in areas of Brooklyn as well in my on my travels. I want to say lived. I mean I've stayed there for, for months and whatnot. Spanish Harlem, West Harlem, and I understand it. It's a very normal thing to be. Ain't no white boy beating me. I, I don't. And I think if. To be honest with you, if a black guy says it, I do think it's ugly. Alan Minter is supposed to have said, I will never lose the title to a black man ahead of the Marvin Hagler fight, which, as you may be aware, he was pretty much a sacrificial lamb in that particular fight. So it came back on him karmically and rather immediately, savagely. But, um, you know, um, some people dislike Minter to this day because they'll dig that quote up. Oh, he said that. And he he wore Union Jack underpants at the weigh-in, which was seen as a kind of... And there's another debate, isn't it? It's St. George's Day today, and to some extent, our... our union flag and our national flag have been have been demonised because because they seem to have racist connotations. Which some people would say, well, that's wrong as well. But I, I understand why David Haney said it because I understand where he's coming from. I realise, and, and to be honest, no, if a white guy said it, it would have an uglier context for me. I know some yeah. people are going to say Ben that doesn't make sense. That's my take on it. Rather long winded as it may have been.
1: No, no, I like that, and I I got to say that your input into that and your kind of uh, your view on it does make me look at it slightly different but like i said right at the start i didn't have a problem with the you know with the either guy saying that it was not an issue for me um but like you say you know maybe there is a slightly different connotation if it's in reverse i'm not, I'm not sure um so just before we get into the questions uh, of the people we'll, uh, yeah. we'll do the, the the quick fire question so basically it's just 10 questions and then you will just say basically the first thing which comes to mind uh, as we yeah. go through them and um, they're all they're not necessarily all boxed in they're just kind of a bit random uh so first one quick fire questions uh first one is biggest pet peeve or irritation it,
0: um, to be honest with you as generic as the answer going to be i think lack of thought lack of ability to to, to reason about something intelligent the lack, of, the lack of ability to examine people who knee-jerk who believe whatever they hear read people who subscribe to cliche points of view it's probably the most annoying thing when I think people uh, just seem literally incapable of any reasoning process it annoys me and I, it can be so many forms I'm going to find it in but that's probably the thing that annoys me more than anything is ignorance and and being misunderstood like I say
1: um, I like that that uh, that's. I think that could possibly be my favourite answer to that question yeah Um most painful feeling in the world.
0: Physically, um, there, there must be more painful feelings I've not experienced. But when you get hit with a body shot, any fighter will tell you. And I don't know many that have been around for any amount of time who haven't experienced it. There's something crippling about getting uh, punched with a body shot. It takes all the air out of you. You feel like you can't breathe, and you're just not getting up. That that is. That is about as bad as anything. I, I know that there must be pain that people have experienced that's worse yeah. than that. Because the thing is, the body shot—you will get over that within thirty seconds, to an extent, as long as the fight doesn't continue. You know, if,
1: if that's you done. But that—that that was
0: my first response.
1: <laughs> yeah, a friend of mine who's um, uh, an MMA journalist—he uh, describes being kicked in the in the kind of the ribs and the the lower stomach area as the pant the pants shitter kick because he said there's yeah. nothing nothing worse than being punched or kicked kind of in that lower, like the liver liver area. Um, Oasis or the Beatles?
0: That's a good question. Um, I'm going to say the Beatles because of their more seminal impact on uh, the history of pop music and rock and roll. I think you, you wouldn't have got one without the other. I went through a Beatles phase when when I was in Colorado rode in for that band and hustling my way around Boulder and Denver I went through that Beatles phase of listening to all their songs I took I took LSD as well thinking that was a good idea because it had that kind of you know intellectual context and artistic context to it because they did it etc and, uh, and Jim Morrison did it too and uh, I, I got into the genius of Lennon McCartney when I was younger, yeah. And I was analyzing the songs the way so many people have, critics and musicians and etc. and fans. And uh, I do think there, there, is a, there is something very fascinating about them in Four Lads from Liverpool. It's, I think you, can, you, uh, you think about them if, you, if you're into music, you think about and you've ever been in a band and been young and stupid yourself. You think about them in uh, leather clad in Hamburg playing every night of the week, you know, out their box on Preludin and Cheap Speed. Uh, shagging everything that moved that came way, all the groupies and you think what you know playing all them rock and roll covers learning how to become rock stars and singers it does sound rather idyllic for a young man doesn't it so i'm gonna say the beatles oh, yeah.
1: absolutely i'll um i get you mentioned jim morrison there i'm gonna circle back to that in a minute because he's one of my uh, on. one of my all-time heroes uh yeah. best tv show of all time
0: i really like just as a tv show i really like minder i'll be honest Classic minder, not not Classic. with Ray, the, you know, no disrespect to that fella Ray and the actor who played him, I've met the actor a couple of times randomly in Richmond and he seems a lovely bloke but Terry McCann era minder I'm going to say.
1: Classic, uh, best movie of all time?
0: I really like *A Clockwork Orange* by Stanley Kubrick, which was withdrawn for many years in this country and you couldn't see it. And things keep, quite organically, things keep going back to my American, my first American trip. I, I saw that in Denver in 1990 as well, because you couldn't watch it here. And I just thought it was stunning. Uh, the, the language, the NADSAT language, was very poetic. The story was just very. very it really, it really got my attention. The idea of this. Despicable behaviour that Alex was indulging in, but the, but the lead character was so attractive, so intelligent, articulate, and attractive, and and kind of sexy, you know. Um, so I, I think that takes some beating for me as a creative effort. I think a Clockwork
1: Orange was an amazing film. Another classic, uh, yeah, it's very good. Uh, but yeah, it was banned for years, wasn't it, in uh, in the UK? Uh, yep. Most famous person in your phone contacts.
0: It, let me think. It might be Joe Calzaghi. And uh, to, uh, to be fair to Joe, he always picks up. I've got Tim Witherspoon as well, but I th- who, it depends where, doesn't it? I mean, Tim Witherspoon is a pretty famous... I've got a lot of boxing people. I'm thinking the most famous. It might be Joe Calzaghi. Is there anybody else who's more famous than that? I've got... Listen, I've got Prince Nassim Hamid's number, but I've never phoned him and he doesn't know me. <laughs> so I'm going <laughs> to say Joe because... because I'm going to say Joe because he has picked up the phone whenever I've called.
1: Yeah. Excellent. Uh, favorite thing in your wardrobe currently?
0: Let me think. Um, probably a like a a grey jacket with, with kind of black suede kind of um, lapels or trim It's probably probably my favourite one here.
1: Yeah. Uh, Lennox Lewis or Tyson Fury?
0: I think um, as a personality, Tyson Fury is a more a, a, Attractive person, charismatic person, sort of more the sort of person. If you, if, if I was still drinking, I'd want to go for a beer with. Mm-hmm. But uh, Lennox Lewis, I think, is, is a greater heavyweight with a better body of work. For now, I mean, it was it's incredible what Tyson did to on his comeback and, and the job we did on Deontay Wilder last time. But I think, in terms of a kind of great heavyweight, you're still talking about Lennox Lewis for the time being.
1: Uh, and in your opinion, the greatest British boxer of all time.
0: Interesting question Simon Um, Your modern guys like Lennox Lewis I know some people have got an issue with him being British But he was born in West Ham As far as I'm concerned he's British Lennox has a claim Joe Kazagi has a claim His undefeated record And his relative quality of opposition Some people say Joe was protected Or kept on the leash for a little bit too long And he had some of those career defining fights When the guys were a little bit past it Certainly Roy Jones was, was a shadow of himself even Joe admits he might not have beaten a peak Roy Giants. Um, Joe has a claim, certainly. Um, I think old-school guys like Ted Kid lewis have, have a... Ted Kid lewis has an amazing record. See, it's hard for the modern era guys to compete with the old veterans because they had so many fights. And they're, 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 they're the ones who were good, who had the longevity. Their resume, like even like guys like Harry Greb across the pond, their resume reads like some giant-killing myth, mythological book rather than a boxing record. Because there was none of that kind of more savvy kind of steering fighters that goes on today. So, um, I think it might be taking Lewis, to be honest with you, in terms of his record. Um, I think it might trump Joe Calzaghi or any more recent guys like Lewis. Okay,
1: cool. Uh, so there were the fire questions. We're going to move into the, the people's questions uh, now. Um, but just before we do, unscripted and uncensored, much like Ace Podcast Nation is sponsored by Away Day Apparel. Away Day Apparel is fast becoming the go-to brand on the casual scene. With their exciting plans, clever designs, they're definitely a brand to watch. All uh, their clothing is reasonably priced, while also using top quality materials that are also good for the environment. Visit awaydayapparel.co.uk for their latest designs. Follow them on social media to keep up to date with their plans going forward. On Instagram, you can find them at awayday__apparel, and on Twitter, they're at awaydayapparel. Especially for listeners and viewers of Ace Podcast Nation, if you use the code AA Podcast Nation, all in lowercase, you can get 10% off all orders. Uh, that's AA Podcast Nation, all in lowercase, 10% off all orders if you use that at the till. And uh, we thank them for sponsoring uh, the show and indeed the channel. Um, so, just something I want to, before we go into the people's questions, and I I just looked at the time. I can't believe we've done forty-five minutes already. That's flown by. Yeah. Um, yep. Yeah. But um, I know we said an hour. Would you be all right to go a little bit longer if we don't get through the questions? Or have you am cool. To finish up.
0: No, you. I, I'm kind of self-isolating really. So I mean, the kids come over once a fortnight at the minute. The the, the lovely lady is, is 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 sequestered in Plasto, so I'm 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 kind of stuck here with you anyhow.
1: So that's good. Excellent. All right, so we can kind of just move through it and talk as we're going. Whatever you want. Uh, but if you get to a point and you need to kind of knock it on the edge, just give me a nod. And, nah,
0: um,
1: no I'll take this little bit out anyway. But um, Okay, so yeah, we mentioned in the quick fire questions there uh, Tyson Fury. Um, and I was wondering if you could really talk to me about how difficult it is uh, or was for Tyson Fury to have the the mental health problems that he had the addiction problems that he had, get to the size that he got to, uh, and then come back and fight at the level that he's fought since he's come back. Because to me, I look at some of those pictures of him, and just the pictures yeah. alone, like the size of him and the shape of him, and just the he looked rough. And I look at that and I think, Jesus, how the hell did he not only get himself well uh, and clean and... Back in shape, but he's also, you know, the linear world champion. It's it's incredible to me. But I, obviously, you will know better than me the 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 amount of effort and work and and heartache he would have gone through to get there.
0: Well, yeah, sure. I mean, but just to be clear on that linear world champion tag, um, the whole thing with that is he was that no matter what. That the the, the 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 contentious claim made by the people who believe in that tag. Was that even though he was was you know went up to forty stone or whatever I exaggerate no doubt um, and was had issues and had his license lifted and was was doing cocaine and was was having mental health problems you know people were saying he was still the champion purely because he beat Klitschko in Dusseldorf in you know in the at the tail end of two thousand fifteen and they they insisted he returned as champion I didn't quite see it that way I think that he had dropped the ball to an extent you know although he'd been railroaded as well and there's certain things he wasn't. Certain things were not entirely fair the way he was dealt with by the sanctioning bodies, you know, and whatnot. But um, I didn't I didn't regard him for me. He had to come back and regain a version of the title, which he did again. I think he, I was at the first fight in Los Angeles with Wilder, and I do think he won that night, like most people did, despite the two knockdowns. Although I do think it was relatively close. I don't think it was a robbery because of those knockdowns. But uh, for me, Tyson regained a status as a world heavyweight champion obviously still sharing that that kind of argument with Anthony Joshua at the minute who regained his titles from Ruiz, but you know, that's when he became champion for me. I I didn't go with the linear, the lineal thing, but for those reasons, but I think it is amazing uh, what he's done. He's clearly, he's clearly a very um, extraordinary character who has an awful lot of, I think he's a child of whim. And when, when he believes in himself, there's no stopping him. I think, I think he is a bit of a child of destiny as well. If you believe in that kind of thing. And I think, you know, it's, something he he just trampled the everything in its wake and kind of taken over the world really and there was something so incredible about seeing him sing that uh don mclean song in the ring after you know i don't know anybody who's ever dreamed of fistic glory who didn't want to be tyson fury that moment especially if you wanted to be a singer as well you know rock star or or a world champion and you you weren't quite sure which way to go to see him say oh i said i do a song didn't i you know didn't i so and he launches into that and when he's singing that line, I know that you're in love with him, he looks at Paris and t- changes it to, I know that I'm in love with you. And you think, well, if your whole life doesn't crystallize at that moment and make you think, fuck yes, this is, this is living, you know, um, like few people ever will, you know. And, he, he, yeah, he's an incredible character. And he also showed, because people didn't believe him when he said he was going to be aggressive and he was going to you know, basically beat Wilder up and he was going to go to him. I thought that was a blind. I thought it was typical Tyson Fury kidology. And he actually went and did it. And it and and it was right. I, I know Ben Davidson to, to an extent. I've, I know him from the gym, and always had a high opinion of his coaching and his acumen. Even though some people thought he was a Johnny come lately, but f- f- it, for whatever reason, it was they were it was right. But the Kronk move paid off well for Tyson. The more aggressive approach, you know, and he showed that Wilder couldn't fight when a guy took it to him, you know, and he, and he took away Wilder's advantages momentum you know and uh I was one of those people who didn't believe we'd see Tyson Fury in a ring again I thought he's he's put on too much weight he's he's been inactive too long I don't think he wants to do it I mean I his uncle Peter Fury told me you know there was times that I might have seen him that he didn't say much but he basically said reading between the lines he's he's not in a good way and he's just you know who knows if he'll box again and uh so I mean, I do think it's an incredible comeback, you know. Um, I think the sheer... Somebody said about Ali one time, Norman Mailer said it, he said, what a wall of ego Ali's will has erected over the years when he was observing him in the build-up to the Foreman fight. And I think there's, there was some of that about Tyson Fury, That idea that a wall of ego has erected you to will anything that you say shall come to pass. You might recall in the post-fight interview, he said, I said, those who use weapons against me shall not prosper. And there is something almost... There is something almost fatalistic about Tyson Fury's rise, fall and reprise, you know.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, like him winning and then the singing and that moment in particular, that um to me encapsulates uh the these these kinds of moments that fight the the boxing or MMA and, and sport generally, um, they they just give you these moments where it's difficult not to get into the uh, and really yeah. feel the emotion and um, and I think sport does that more than than anything else uh you know we regularly yeah. see these these emotional moments that capture you whether you're in the stadium or whether you're watching at home watching alone or watching with friends or watching in the pub well you know wherever you will be watching they they just capture the emotion and it can get you um so as soon as we kind of uh, opened the door, or I opened the door to AJ and uh, to Fury, and obviously we've had a couple of questions regarding Fury and AJ, um, but just before that, I wanted to ask you a question, because we just talked about Tyson's Fury battle, battle his battle with mental health. Um, yeah. and this was a question from me, really. Um, I do like a mental health in sports series, <coughs> um, which I haven't, yeah. done, I haven't done an episode for a while, but we did a few, um, and I, one of the things which often comes up is how professional athletes struggle when they do have to retire, um, and particularly boxers seem to, and fighters do seem to have this big struggle upon retirement. Not yeah. all of them, obviously, but there is a large number which do seem Most. to to have this struggle uh, to 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 come to terms with retiring. And then we often see boxers coming back, you know, like age 50 and looking a shadow of their mm-hmm. former selves, and their and their sometimes their legacies can be damaged in the process because, you know, they're nowhere near the level that they perhaps were twenty years previous for obvious reasons. Um why do you yeah. think that uh, so many athletes but about boxers in particular struggle with, with retirement and the mental health side of it when they do retire?
0: Because I think boxing most of them tend to take it up at a young age and it tends to um it tends to define it tends to be the ultimate definition of who they are as a person. And if anything, they become, while, while it might be character building in some ways and it gives them a routine and discipline, when that framework is taken away, it seems meaningless. I know a lot of some fighters remain fitness freaks in their retirement, like Jim McDonnell, and I think those people are quite blessed. Some of them go the other way, they really can't be bothered, and perhaps they, they dive headlong into vices with the same zeal they used to dive into that monastic training. Um, so I think. For some fighters, it's not enough just the gym or hitting the bag, ticking over. I know Marvin Hagler always said he'd stay out of the gym because he didn't want to get the smell again of liniment, you know, and, and the taste of it because he, cause he knew otherwise his retirement might not be final. He'd be in danger of coming back and, like you say, compromising his legacy and putting himself in a position where he wouldn't do himself justice compared to the, the fantastic career that he had. So I think sometimes all meaning is taken out of a fighter's life. They, they miss the camaraderie of the gym too. You can't. They miss the thriller boxing, the adulation to which nothing else compares, as Sugar Ray Leonard said. You know, Sugar Ray Leonard had a bunch of retirements and he was he confessed to uh drinking alcoholically, to to using cocaine because he couldn't find that fix that he got when it, you know, when his name was up in lights on the strip and he had that, you know, um supreme one on one competition, mano mano kind of thing going on, and the battle with himself. So I mean Ray Leonard when he embarrassed himself uh, against Terry Norris to an extent, and even more so in 1997 against Hector Camacho. When I did my first interview with Ray Leonard in 2012, he said, I came back because I felt more stable in the ring. He said, I felt safe in the ring. And I, I said to him, you know, the irony is, although it's a dangerous occupation for many fighters, the ring remains a relative place of safety. And he said, without question, you know. So I think, I think they just get their, their whole... One of the problems, Simon, is you can't keep doing it, can you? If you you happen to be um, a quantity surveyor, I guess you can kind of do that to your 60-odd retirement age, and you can do a lot of jobs that that you're good at and you have a certain amount of job security. You can continue to do it. uh, Necessarily, by definition, the athlete's life and the fighter's life is shorter. And I also think the aftercare is probably not as good. People tell me footballers have much better aftercare, um, probably because that sport can afford it. To be honest with you, I've got mixed feelings about aftercare because part of me, they say, oh, we should be doing more for ex-fighters. We should be having whip rounds. We should be doing testimonials. Part of me thinks, you know what? That's life. That's the food chain. You used to be a boxer. You're not anymore. Get over it. You've got to go out and work for a living. If you didn't make enough money while you were fighting, or, I mean, I hope you didn't get robbed. I know that I know that some of them certainly did. Mm. You know what I mean? I, I don't want to be harsh and I'd do anything for a fighter because I was a boxer too and my, that's my community. And I, and I do do what I can fighters have been on hard times but part of me feels like saying well okay you used to be a boxer that moves on and, and you have to fight i find some of the happier fighters like guys like john h tracy and john conte are the ones who've kind of left it behind simon they they yeah. know they were world champions and they remember it and they they don't mind talking about it but they have moved on in their life they're not they don't live in that space where i, I get the impression they're not shadow boxing every day you know what i mean things like yeah. that whereas some fighters the ones who didn't get to the mountain top, and they feel that perhaps somebody else was to blame for that. You know, it's, sometimes that goes on. I think they can't really leave it behind. But I mean, you know, even fighters who did get to the mountain top, like Ricky Hatton and Frank Bruno, we've seen them have struggles and issues with substances as well. I do, I do think it, it, it because it's such an all-consuming thing to be a boxer. Even though I wasn't a pro, I, I've had an insight into that. Um, uh, listen, I know people who had a few amateur fights and stopped as a junior, but they maybe had maybe 60 amateur fights. And they, in their head, that's still the best thing they ever did. And they've never left it alone for one day. And, and to them, they are still a boxer. That is what defines them, whether people agree with them or not, whether they say you didn't turn pro. They, in their minds, they are a boxer, you know. So I think it never leaves some people. And because they can't, um, it has to end somewhere. They don't handle it well, you know. And uh, and if you um, if you also happen to be... Uh, you know, in financial hardship, that makes it even worse. Although, as I say, guys like Sugar Leonard and Ricky Hatton, earned plenty of money, and they still struggled.
1: Yeah, yeah, of course. I um, do you think that maybe if we, if boxing as a whole encouraged uh, former fighters when they retire to to maybe train to be judges, to be referees, to be involved within the sport on an official level, this would. Reduce the the amount of maybe cases where fighters are struggling to come to terms with their retirement, but also improve, you know, the judging and the refereeing and the. Uh,
0: I think yeah, I I think that we could have better kind of channels for absorbing ex fighters into the sport. The only thing I would say, as as a caveat, is there's no money in boxing except at the very top, as you can imagine. We have a very kind of capitalist pyramid in boxing. Where the, for the matchrooms rooms in the promotional side, and the Bob Arams and the and the Floyd Mayweather's on the, the 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 fighting side at the sharp end of it, they they seem to get all the money, and there's very little that filters down through. So, in terms of saying why don't you become a referee or a judge, there's only so many referees and judges you can have, and jobs you can have in that way that's going to sustain somebody more than a hobby. For a lot, you know, for a lot of people, even judges like Bob Williams, you know, who, who does a lot of the fights on TV certainly in this country works for the fire service and you know, a lot of them have day jobs so uh same thing with coaching when they go into coaching a lot of fighters go uh, into training fighters obviously not all of them are, are good at it though you know and um would it improve the quality of judging if more ex-fighters cause some people are going to have an issue with judges aren't they saying a guy's never taken a punch in his life and he and yeah, he's he has in his hands the destiny and the financial future and security of certain fighters with the decisions he makes and we've seen some crazy verdicts some people think it's bent and th- some people think the judges bribed the promoters bribed them you know give them the, the famous you know white envelopes metaphor or brown envelopes some people think that there's just an automatic desire to favor the promoter's fighter and to the the house fighter because it, that's just the way life is the, Barry Hearn once said it to me you know when uh, people thought Eris Landy Lara beat Saul Canelo Alvarez back in 2014 uh, he said you know Yes, but, uh, you know, Alvarez is the bigger commercial animal, isn't he? And he said, you know, I'm not saying it's crooked, but you, there's a natural tendency to veer towards the bigger commercial animal. So, um, generally, I would be... See, this is the thing, Simon. I don't always think that fighters know more about things. They know more about the physical side of boxing. Um, they don't always make better trainers than guys who never boxed, because you've got guys like Angelo Costamato, and Ray Arcelo who never boxed. you get guys like Lloyd Honeycomb who did, and... Would you believe this? Lloyd Hunnigan managed to fail the ABA Part One coaching course. I don't know. It's part of local London boxing folklore that he failed the ABA, the ABA level one. I don't know how he managed that or who, who assessed him. But what I'm saying is, not all ex-boxers will make better judges. I think yeah. sometimes I know people who've never boxed in their life who are very good judges of boxing. They're very they're good historians. I've got some world class fighters talk a lot of rubbish. They they've got no historical perspective. Or and some of them they don't know they know about them boxing and they know what they did, but they haven't necessarily got a fantastic knowledge base beyond that, the, the realm of what they did when they were in the ring and, and what worked for them. So, having said that, I would genuinely be happier with Xboxes, uh, You know, having been through the same course as other judges go through, I think we could improve judging with more Xboxes in it. Yeah, um, probably.
1: Yeah, I think. Do you know? Funny enough, uh, Simon, you mentioned that uh, all the different fighters I've had on, uh, whether they be boxers or MMA fighters, uh, one thing which does stick out to me is that they don't always follow boxing as a sport generally, no. or they don't, uh, or MMA generally. They concentrate on their stuff Them. and who their next opponent is, or yeah, you know, their upcoming opponents, or who they would like to face. You know, who's got a belt maybe, but. They're not. They don't. You know, sit down like the rest of us every Saturday and tune in for the the boxing and the MMA and this. You know, um, yeah. And that surprised me to a certain extent because I kind of always assumed you know they must love you know They'd be obsessed, they must yeah. be obsessed with it. But they are obsessed with it. But they're obsessed with success and they're obsessed with achieving their their goals. Not necessarily
0: fans. You know, yeah. Other
1: fighters not. and uh, etc so
0: you raise a great point I think you raise a great point because it, it struck me when I was hanging around the Thomas a. Beckett gym in the 1980s you say that they focused on their opponents and their fighters sometimes not even the guy called Prince Rodney who was British like middleweight champion he beat Jimmy Batten for the title and then he um, defended it uh, I believe at least once and then he was sidelined because of injury and a guy called Jimmy Cable won the title and his stead. he fought a guy called Mick Courtney for his vacant title it was live on BBC One back in the day when British title fight was still a BBC One kind of midweek prime time affair. Um, and I asked him, what did he think of it? Thinking it was a given he'd seen it. And he said he didn't watch it. Now, me and my dad thought that was incredible that these are the guys fighting for your title that should, you know, that you're going to be, as soon as you're well again, you're going to be fighting the winner. And he hadn't even watched it. And, and it went on. There was guys who didn't know who the top 10 were in, the, you know, in their particular division, things like that hadn't seen certain fighters what you've got to bear in mind is some fighters don't like to watch their opponents some of them psychologically they don't want to go there especially if the guy looks good they they prefer to say listen nah i'll I'll react to what he does my trainer can watch it. he'll tell me what to do i trust him some fighters much as you might find it strange they don't like to watch their opponents some of them on the other hand they like to see anything they can get it the, the the psyches of prize fighters are very individual and very uh complex so And and as you said, over and above their own fights and their own opponents on the horizon, some of them are not big fans of the sport. Um, You know, I remember Sugarway Robinson classically when when an interviewer asked him, did you catch the welterweight championship the other night, uh, the welterweight title fight the other night, Mr. Robinson? He said, I'm awfully sorry to say I didn't. I'm just not a fight fan, you know. And Mm -hmm. he said he certainly never enjoyed boxing. And uh, a guy called Milton McCrory back in the 80s who beat Colin Jones, who's one of your compatriots, said... "Um, you know, he said, I don't, I, bo- I do boxing to make money. He said, as soon as the fight's over, I don't want to talk about it, read about it, or watch it. He said, baseball is what I love, and my sports hero is Alkaline. So, you know what? You, you raise a great point that not every b- boxer is into b- boxing. Martin Murray told me he hated it. You know, he said, I, I don't like watching boxing. Uh, somebody one time asked him, was he watching a certain fight? And he said, no, I'm watching Pepper Pig with the kids. So, mm. you know, uh, they, they're not all into it.
1: Yeah, yeah. I am um, so we talked a bit about uh, Tyson Fury and we had a question basically sent in uh, it said AJ versus Fury uh, discuss will, uh, will it happen when will it happen uh why won't it happen if it won't happen and who wins and why
0: okay i think it will happen now because i think the the powers that be on both sides want to see it happen the reasons why it wouldn't happen are the same reasons why any big fight doesn't happen in this era and hasn't happened for or why maybe the pacquiao took so long to get it on because because too many vested interests want to keep these guys apart because they can they can make money without having to to ruin each other's you know situation you. and career directory that's one reason yeah. but but i think and also think one of the positive flip sides of this uh coronavirus uh, pandemic Simon, could be that when we do get a chance, to you know, a bit like you know, don't know what you've got till it's gone and you you, you blow away all the small stuff and you only focus on what matters, like some people will be doing now with their family life and realising what really matters to them, you know and thinking, does it even matter if I lose my house as long as my family don't you know, as long as my family are okay and still survive, you know, so and I think we'll notice that in boxing, that I think maybe there will be be a, a an eagerness to put that fight together only the best and biggest fights this is my theory at least i may be wrong and i think that we may see a rush you know scrap what we said scrap the mandatory with uh Pulev that was obviously slated for you know june the 20th at Tottenham hotspur ground never mind the the, the, the pointlessness of a, of a fury wilder three which there isn't a lot of um, expectation about anyway because of the conclusive nature of fury's victory in the rematch I, I think it will happen as soon as we're able to put on big events again um a little offshoot from that is you might have heard that there's been discussion of putting on big fights behind closed doors without a live crowd. If, if, if they have to do it that way, I'm not sure you could put on one as big as Fury Joshua, but I think it will happen, Simon. Um, and I think Corona might end up making it happen sooner rather than later and blowing out some of the obstacles conceivably in the way of it. And I definitely I like Anthony Joshua, and he's a lovely guy and he's a good fighter. I was very impressed with his. Uh, performance you know, in the rematch against Ruiz but I think Fiori wins the fight. I've always thought Fiori beats Joshua even before Fiori showed that kind of other string to his bow last time out. I just think he's the better, more robust more talented and I think he's the emotionally I think he's the mentally stronger guy of the two as well
1: Yeah I think for me personally like I've never been um, a massive massive Andy Joshua fan. Like he's clearly very talented you know you don't fight in the Olympics if you're not a good boxer and I think that gets people sometimes I I see a lot of people say on like social media or uh, you know Tyson Fury is just the the better technical boxer and and I just think yeah I think sometimes people get lost in the fact that you know Anthony Joshua has won so many fights by KO that they forget that you know he fought at the Olympics and he you know he, he is a technically very good boxer but I uh, I agree with you I think uh Tyson Fury is a lot stronger mentally um AJ has shown signs he, in the Klitschko fight um there was a point where he looked you know broken but then you know he did go on and come back from that and win the fight so I mean you sa- I say that on one hand I think Tyson Fury is stronger but mentally but then you know equally AJ did show a bit of mental toughness to, to yeah, have that fun. kind of, you know, he had uh, Klitschko look like he was going to finish him at one point, and you know he came back from that. So you got it. And obviously, I think it took a lot for AJ as well to uh, against Ruiz to that that second fight. You know, he really had to turn up uh, mentally more than more than you know physically and technically because I think I think people knew that he could beat him. Uh, from a fight point of view, but yeah. I think it was whether that loss and the aura disappearing of his undefeated streak, whether he could mentally get past that, and I think that was more impressive to me than his physical uh, performance. But yes, I agree. I think yeah. Tyson Fury will. Play. I think it'll be a good fight. I think it'll be closer than people think as well.
0: Yeah, you know, I'd, I'd, just quickly, I think. I think that what I didn't know about Andy Joshua before, uh, because he he passed the gut check against Klitschko, as you said, I think that the the distress signs were against Ruiz that that gave people serious pause about his kind of almost kind of um, sense of surrender in that fight. But what I didn't know about Joshua was that he was capable of boxing the way he did against Ruiz, getting on his toes um, for 12 rounds the way he did and showing a bit of like his best, you know, kind of Ali karaoke style kind of effort, really. So, you know... uh, it, like you say, it's it's not a foregone conclusion, but I do fancy Fury for it.
1: Yes, uh, me too. Um Okay, let's, let's get into some of these questions. Let's go to the start. Uh, okay. Uh your nickname is White Sugar. Uh why? Yeah.
0: Because um I liked I mean I like Garley and Sugar Elena. I, I worshiped Ali and Sugar learned when I was a kid. I tried to imitate that style. I started, you know, young at ten, and I seemed to take to it. People thought I had a bit of flair. People made a bit of a fuss of me because I was the youngest in the club, and I showed a bit of spark of talent. I won. I won my first three fights on a spin, which, although it's not, it's hardly uh, Lomachenko's kind of amateur run, but but it was a, still a bit of a thing that a lot of kids were losing their first bout at our club. You know, we're a small club in the sticks in Stroud called Rock's House ABC, and uh, so I was a big fish in a small pond. I suppose you'd say. I mean, I, I had that kind of. I couldn't watch YouTube, but I could watch any alley fights I could find. That ever. We used to be on BBC. I could watch Sugar Way Leonard as his fights were, were transpiring in real time, unfolding. I kind of copied it from a young age and fancied myself as that kind of guy, you know, slick fighter. Thought I was black, I guess. Um, yeah. And, yeah, so by the time I was 15, I think I came up with the name White Sugar. And I went to Charlie Magri, former WBC flyweight champion of the world, who's still a friend of mine today. He had a shop on Bethnal Green Road. Uh, title sports shop mostly specializing in boxing equipment, uh, in the old east end. And uh, we went to get these shorts personalized, they were black and red satin. And we said we wanted white sugar on it. And um, Magri looked did a bit of a double take and said, White sugar. Uh, it was my dad who actually went to get them done. And my dad said, Why do you think it's a bit over the top for an amateur, for a junior? And obviously he was getting paid by the letter. So he said, no, 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 I think it's it's all (laughs) right. So he put white sugar on the waistband of them shorts. And, uh, yeah, that was what I called myself. And um, to be honest with you, it kind of caught on about 30 years too late. But I am kind of glad, obviously, you found that out from somewhere. Uh, People still do call me that, you know. um, Some people hate me for it as well and be like, he's a fraud. He, 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 He makes out he was a fake amateur standout. I'm not convinced he even had the 38 amateur fights he said he had. We know he had. We know he had some because there's some footage on the internet. But they don't sag off for style. I'll be honest with that. I've, I've never heard anybody say I can't fight. But but they'll say oh he exaggerates and he's a fake amateur standout and he, he never turned pro. Calls himself white sugar. Never had a fucking pro fight in his life. They, they're already detractors as well. But I, I kind of I'm proud of my little amateur career such as it was i'm glad i got a bit of a footage when i came back after the 12 years in the in the wilderness as it were i was glad for the mere fact that i got some film footage of my fights you know so at least people can see kind of what I was like and make their own you know, make their own judgment on it but yeah so th- that was white sugar it was about being i don't know i've I'd, I'd never heard of another white fighter called sugar at the time i'm not still not sure if there's been one i mean i know bradley sugar sweet price who's from the valleys um yeah, he's he's mixed race, isn't he? Uh, I I'm not sure if there's been another. There's never. You know what? I am surprised no flashy young likely lad of this era has come up as a pro has come up with that name White Sugar because you've got Brown Sugar who's Ethan Pickering who's a friend of mine who you know fought at the Ingle Gym. You've got uh, you had Anthony Agogo called himself brutal for Brown Sugar. You've had a bunch of other sugars like Sugar Shane Mosley. I'm surprised nobody has um, has usurped me with a White Sugar tag, but nobody has.
1: Yeah. Um, if you could have picked uh, one opponent from any era, but it would have in your only uh, only fight ever. But you could have picked any opponent from any era. Uh, who would it have been?
0: Let me think but about that. Interesting. To
1: fight once.
0: Yeah, just so you, hopefully your crown in glory. Presumably, your your pla- the, the the protagonist is planning on winning, presumably, and it yeah. wants an opponent, a defining opponent. um It's. A, I'm not going to say one of my idols like sh- like Sugarboy Leonard because I because I I think he'd beat me, and that is just that And it, okay, the honour of sharing the room with him. I would hate to fight Thomas Hearns, by the way. Um, Who can I say without seeming too egotistical? I once saw Chris Eubank. uh, I've seen him a lot of fights, obviously, and I've interviewed him a bunch of times. But I remember watching Chris Eubank versus Gary Stretch. Gary was more of a light middleweight. He was a guy, you know, uh, quite a slick white fighter who had some of the kind of nice smooth moves. And I remember thinking he had a half a chance against Chris at the time. Uh, When it came down to it, Eubank was basically too strong for him. But uh, for a couple of rounds, Gary was doing okay. And I remember thinking, I was getting the itch almost ready, almost thinking already, I should be doing this again. I should be back in the gym. And I was, you know, encouraging him in the living room. My dad was supporting Eubank. I was supporting Stretch. And I remember thinking, in my in my reveries, I was thinking, I'd I, I know how to go about boxing Eubank. You know, he can't handle movers. Dan Sherry, who's a good guy, was on Facebook, mugged Chris Eubank off for 10 rounds until they had that controversy of the headbutt and then the, the technical decision and all the rest of it. Um, so I'm going to say Chris Eubank because. When I was like 21, I, I, I'd imagine myself giving him the run around, boxing him and staying out of trouble. So I'm going to say Eubank, all right?
1: Shout Chris Eubank, uh, instantly is um, one of my idols, uh, mainly because the reason I ever started watching boxing was because I sat down and watched Chris Eubank versus Nigel Ben with my father. And yep. if I hadn't have done that, I wouldn't have. I I dare say I would have as I had got older, but as a kid, I don't think I'd have ever had an interest in boxing. So I've always uh, been very, you know, I always be very interested in everything Chris Eubank does. And then in turn, when his son, when Chris Eubank Jr. come on the scene, I've been very interested in him as a follow-on to that. Um, And funny enough, Chris Eubank's one of the few people who, If, like, I can't stand reality TV. I cannot stand it. I can't even watch a second of it, like, no matter what it is. But um, there's very few people who I'll follow enough that I'll watch them on other things, like, outside of their chosen field. Um, And he is one of them I watched. I'm a celebrity, I think it was, with him. Uh, Him and Bez were the only two who I've kind of followed from. Outside of the fields, which was interesting. Um, Who is the most underrated boxer from the UK in the last 15 to 20 years?
0: Most underrated? Um, You know what? It's probably Duke McKenzie. Although he's not from the last 15 or 20. He's he's, he's a little longer ago. I I will try and update it for that time scale, if you wish. I think Duke, because Duke won world titles at three weights, he is a little bit undervalued for that. I realise world titles are are more uh, you know, prolific, even in his era, than they were a good 20 years before that. But I think Duke is hardly ever mentioned, although he was mentioned in Arsenal and the Sun today about the 10 best British boxers of the last 30 years. Uh, other underrated guys who haven't got their props in the last... T- See, the last 20 years, it's only the 2000s, isn't it? Only, we're only talking about the 2000s. Yeah. Um. It's interesting. Let's go from from a heavyweight just to, to get a feel for the fighter in that kind of era. Um, it, basically, of of the um, of the 21st century, essentially, most underrated British fighter. I mean, I think Junior Witter. He might not be the answer, but he. I think he's probably a little bit undervalued. I think he would have. I happen to think he might have beaten Ricky Hatton when there was a clamour for that fight, even though Hatton went on to achieve more. I think Junior Witter, he was slated for his fight with Zab Judah and I actually thought he did very well at short notice considering how relatively green he was. So Witter would be
1: one of those guys. Um,
0: i trying to think of a few more before we move on.
1: Where you are then, um, there's yeah. a f- like kind of second part to the question is the uh, same question for outside of the UK as well. To open the most
0: underrated, to the 21st, most underrated fighter of the twenty-first, most underrated fighter of the twenty-first century from outside of the UK.
1: What would that be? So many, so many to choose from. and it? It's tough to like. It is. Yeah.
0: I mean, I, 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 I could think of it earlier if it, if it went back like thirty or forty years. But of this century, the most. It, it almost takes a while to marinate for those legacies, even. But uh, to give you a quick answer, who would it have been? Probably Roman Gonzalez, I would say, uh, even though he's rated enough in boxing circles and people who know what they're talking about. But there is an argument that Roman Gonzalez was the greatest fighter of this of this century so far. You know, that, that he has a rival body of work to Floyd Mayweather. He was undefeated for a very long time. He was a three-weight world champion. It's the usual story. If he'd have been bigger, if he'd have spoke English. He would have been a superstar outside of his, you know, native Mexico, but Roman Gonzalez was one hell of a fighter, and I, he probably is the most under because even a guy like Naoya in in, in is getting his props now, and he's broken out of that kind of cult status he was in. Now he's more mainstream. I'm going to say Roman Gonzalez.
1: It, it, that is
0: easier for me to say than the British question. To be honest with you.
1: Okay. Cool. Um, what else we got? Uh, was boxing always the only sport for you? Or were you? Are you in? Were you interested in other sports growing up?
0: No, t- to be honest, I, I never, I never really was. I mean, i I had a passing interest in tennis. Um, I thought that I was kind of cool when I was a kid. Um, the controversy, and obviously, he was a very good player. I played a bit of tennis, and you know, kind of, I got. Good enough to be able to serve properly most people most people do the cheat serve don't they just to get a game going especially when Wimbledon's on you get that clamor to use the court suddenly I could serve overhead and play a game, but now nah, you know i never never competed in that uh, sphere it, it was really always about boxing to me it was, um, okay. i almost don't, I almost consider boxing really distinct from the other sports like it's a kind of tragic theater and it's a it's a seedy underworld and it's it's a, it's a glamorous Yet corrupt entertainment industry, it seems to have a more fascinating folklore than any other sport. I, I, I mean, I I might be biased, but I I would stake that claim. It has a more fascinating backstory, and more fascinating characters than any other sport can can match it for the rich tapestry. So, it was always about boxing for me.
1: Okay, cool. Do you um, Do you follow MMA at all?
0: I must admit, I don't. I I, I know really entry level stuff. A couple of big names. I um, Obviously, I'm aware of the McGregor phenomenon. I've trained a few MMA fighters, but only in boxing, you know, when they, they need a guy for striking. Obviously, yeah. in the last several years, boxers and, and MMA fighters have shared gyms. Sometimes they've come into contact, so there's been a certain amount of cross-pollination. And uh, I've taken on a couple of... I think I, I did pads one time with Paul Daly, who's a famous oh, yeah. MMA yeah. fighter. I held the pads for him just one time. Um, I had a fight an MMA fighter called Wendell Lewis at one point who... Who use me as his striking coach? They call it, don't they? Um, yes. So, but no, I don't know much about it, and I, it's not something I'm into as a fan.
1: Okay. Um, what about uh, bare knuckle boxing? What's your uh, what's your opinion of it? And uh, what did you make of Paulie Malinaji versus uh, Artem Lobov? No. If you watched it,
0: I think the BKB. I'm really surprised that it became um, as big as it's become. Uh, because I would have thought you might have thought it was something that aside from the pioneering era starting with James Figg in 1719 and going through you know up until John, uh, John L. Sullivan bridged the gloved bare knuckle gap mm. you might have thought it was something that was relegated to uh, gypsy uh, quarrels and uh, you know illegal uh, covert fights in fields you know but the fact that it's been marked, it just shows you in this era, you can market almost anything um, if you do it right, you know. And I think that's what they've done, like the MMA explosion. I think they probably looked at that as well. Thought people are, some people are bored with boxing, the way the format has got. Maybe it's a bit stayed for them, particularly since the best don't fight the best as routinely as they used to. It's certainly not in the, you know, 70s and the 80s. So I think maybe that for the more kind of what's the, uh, the quick fix, you know, the instant gratification angle, the... People who want to see shorter fights, more violent fights, more blood, more you know, like they do in MMA as well. Uh, I've been to one BKB show and it was OK. I, I think what's interesting about it is the fight can really turn on a spin of a coin. You can get two well-matched boxers who are not going not to hurt each other in a million years sometimes because they've got the measure of each other. Perhaps neither of them is a big puncher. They're both very defensively adept. They cancel each other out, whatever. And you can see 12 rounds, which perhaps is not very scintillating to people at all, but the purists, let's say. Yeah. With the uh, bare knuckle boxing, I could see somebody lands a decent shot with them tiny gloves. Oh, well, they're not really got gloves; they've got
1: wraps. Um, the, yeah, I
0: they've got like wraps, that. and the knuckles are, st- are still—you know—the hands are protected, but the knuckles are still bare, as I understand it. So, someone takes one of those punches. Next thing you know, he's got an eye out here when he just made Shit. one mistake. So, I-, I found the fights could turn on a spin of a coin, and you could see a stoppage—not really a knockout so much—but you could see a stoppage very quickly. From out of nowhere, and I guess that was exciting for a lot of people. It's pacey, you know, and uh so yeah. I mean, I I didn't see the Malinaji fight. I saw Paulie's hands after it. Um, I could see for Paulie it was a challenge, wasn't it? He was retired as a boxer. What one thing I do, I'm aware of is boxers who are basically haven't got it anymore in the ring. Or they can't compete at the elite level or whatever level they used to be at in boxing tend to turn to BKB. So one might assume the entry level is not as high as it is for boxing, yeah. based on that logic. But I can see why Paulie wanted another challenge, and it's all, it's all another payday, isn't it?
1: Yeah, the um, I believe the cause it's not something that I followed massively closely myself. I I followed a little bit of it. Um, I believe that they had uh, the people who invested in it or the people who own it. Uh, they've got a bit of money behind them, so I think you know they were looking for the kind of bigger names like a Paulie Man and to to put yeah. on a you know a fight where they could. Uh, they were paying them well, should we say? Um, which yeah. quite rightly, I believe. I believe that uh, boxers and MMA fighters should be among the best paid athletes in the world because they're putting their health and future health yeah. in you know in in other people's hands. And it, we've seen over the years things that can go wrong uh, during these fights. So I believe they should be you know well paid. Uh, I'd much rather see fighters getting. The money which footballers get, than the other way around. If that makes sense. Yeah, um, but I guess it's
0: supply and demand. Isn't it?
1: Yes, yeah, that's it. It's, it's absolutely. Um, who is the the most nervous fighter you've ever seen?
0: Most nervous fighter I've ever seen. Um, I know I've never been with Danny Williams before fights, but I know Danny Williams well, and I know people who trained him like Dave Pereira and Spencer Fearon. And I've been in dressing room situations with Danny Williams when uh, he was with helping me with a fighter who had a fight in uh, the south of France one time. And I know Danny used to get terrible nerves, which were which could defeat him sometimes before he went in. He could have a bed there at the office. He, he was brilliant on his day, Danny, and always brilliant in the gym, but sometimes erratic in the ring. And some people said that was down to nerves and his, his temperament in general. That would be one. Um, I saw a kid... There was a kid once who shouldn't have turned pro. He was from Bristol, and he came up to me for a few training sessions and said that he wanted to, uh, to turn pro. He was going to be a journeyman. He knew the score. Steve Goodwin signed him. He hadn't had a lot of amateur fights. And the guy, basically, it wasn't the right time for him to turn pro. He seemed – there's nerves and there's nerves. He, he, his kind of gallows humour. We kept saying – we kept talking about – you know, he'd be on about, oh, let's – We'll get a picture later. If I'm, not in, if I'm not in A&E, he kept laughing nervously. But he made too many jokes like that in a way that I'd never yeah. experienced before. And I think he, he fought a guy called Paul Upton, who was one of the Upton brothers, who was an up-and-coming kid. And he got, uh, he got stopped in the first round. And, and, and when, he, when he fought again for his second pro fight, he got stopped in the first again. And to the best of my knowledge, he hasn't boxed as a pro since then. And that was a few years ago. He was one of the more nervous ones I've seen. So as a famous case, Danny Williams... And as as a non-famous case, this kid who shall remain
1: nameless, because he, he's a nice guy and doesn't deserve to be named, but yeah. but he
0: seemed very nervous to me.
1: So the the just kind of follow-up to that question was there also, is there a fighter which stands out in memory, who you've seen that couldn't handle the nerves before the big fights, where it kind of you know caused him an issue, shall we say, going into the fight? But obviously you just mentioned uh, the guy there. Yeah, well, do you know what? With I think Trevor Burbick bottled it to an extent against Mike
0: Tyson because if you look at Burbick, he was kind of kamikaze aggressive against Mike Tyson in a way that if you you start trading up with a big puncher that early, I think it's a sign you've lost your nerve because anybody can run at the guy. It doesn't take any kind of... It doesn't take any presence of mind or self-possession to do that. That's just saying, well, fuck it. You know, I'm going to mill at the guy and if I get KO'd, I get KO'd. I think when somebody starts trading like crazy suicidally with a big puncher, I think it's a sure sign. It's not a brave move at all. I think it's a covert sign that the nerve has gone. So I think, I think Trevor Burbitt crept against Mike Tyson, okay. um, and that's why he got KO'd so early. One of the reasons.
1: Um, okay. Now we're going to get us into some of the more random ones. Uh, who's the biggest tosser that you've met within boxing? Um, let me
0: say, who's going to get, um I'm not a big fan of Carl Frampton. Although when I say met him, I mean I've been around him. Um, I've been—he's been in the gym and come to Spark, the old TKO and all the rest of it. Um, he, to give you the backstory, I did an interview with Joe Joyce. I've done a few, but I did—I'm not allowed to do any more apparently. I've, I've been told never to ask for another interview with Joe Joyce again by his manager Sam Jones. And uh, what it was, a friend of mine—I was just interviewing him on the phone because I, you know. That, I gave Boxing Social the camera back once it stopped working for them. I don't have a camera, so unless I bring someone with me who's a proper camera person, I'm just i I'm good to go on the phone. I know my way around editing. You can get quite good results on a phone. I realise it doesn't look as good. but So I'm, I'm interviewing um, Joe Joyce on the phone. and A friend of mine who's a photographer who's come to the press conference, uh, which was a Billy Joe Saunders press conference, ahead of his appearance at the Stevenage football ground, so there's a picture my friends taken of me filming Joe Joyce on the phone, and it, it was kind of a cool picture. So, because Joe Joyce has a reputation as being a bit dry and a bit not classically charismatic and being quite a tough interview, mm. rightly or wrongly, I posted on my Facebook and I think Instagram as well. The picture, there's me filming him, and and the and the caption is, "It's okay, Joe. I've got an app on here that makes the interviews more more, more controversial and interesting post production or something like that." Yeah. <laughs> Uh, making the point that Joe Joyce is not the most talkative fella, and uh, somebody grabbed hold of that said, you know, so-called boxing journalist Ben Doughty takes the piss out of Joe Joyce, even though he was nice enough to give an interview to some wanker with an iPhone. Now, for some reason, Frampton jumped on this and and screenshotted that and tw- tweeted it, saying, "Prick! I hope Joe I hope Joe recognises him next time." And uh, yeah, and then it went viral and people were hanging me out to dry. Like we spoke about the toxic Twitter thing, the Pitchfork yeah. mob were all out were out for me, and... Uh, to be honest I can't be bothered to argue with tosses with false names I mean I, and it, with Frampton, I could have gone back at him, but to be honest i I figured I'll wait till I see Frampton. and I, I have seen him since um at presser and I just elected not not to speak to him I, in my mind, I was going to say, you know oh you know if you, you want to call me a wanker, I'll give you opportunity to do it to my face but then I thought, you know what well, that's not going to prove a whole lot either. I was with my girlfriend at, at one of the occasions because I saw him twice on I think within the same couple of days I think it was when Camp was it Campbell Lomachenko press conference or whatever it was anyway. But and she said I'll oh, just forget about it, you know. But but so I'm not a big fan of Carl Frampton because I don't understand why he needed to why he needed to create that situation. But you know what, it is what it is. I suppose Frampton would say he's been at the sharp end of that and he thinks I'm being disrespectful. If Carl Frampton knew me, he'd know that I'm not. I, I would never disrespect a fighter. I like Joe Joyce, he's a nice guy, and uh, I, didn't, I didn't mean anything bad by it, and I thought, of all the tweet, of all the things that go on in the world, and all the much more uglier, more controversial tweets they are, I, I thought they were really scraping the bottom of the barrel with that one. Riddick Bowe, not overly friendly either. Riddick Bowe, uh, spoke to him in Vegas very briefly, asked him perhaps for a picture. You know, it wasn't the be-all and end-all, he's not an idol of mine, but I thought it would be something for social media. Yes. First guy that we met that day, as we went to the weigh-in for Floyd May with a Madonna too. And he was like, "No, how much money you got?" And he was just a bit. Mm -hmm. You know, people have said Bo is a bit like that. So, Riddick Bowe and Carl Frampton, uh, you know, listen. I'm sure if I knew Carl Frampton on a different basis, and Riddick Bowe, I'm sure I'd probably like them, and they like me. But that's my first impression of both of them not great.
1: Yeah, I think that's fair, and you know, I think like even just from what you told me about the tweet which you put up with about Joe Joyce, it's it's kind of clear that it's like tongue-in-cheek in cheek,
0: isn't it but Do you know what people, i thought it was kind of get, mild
1: I, people get i bit, said um,
0: yeah i've got an app so joe that ma- i've got the app that makes the interviews more interesting and controversial i said it's it's pretty mild and i mean i i could have even retreated from that at all and said i don't know what you're talking about but but you know like i say my twitter went mad for a week or so uh with that people saying oh. You know, there's. I've let, I've. I've created situations around myself before that people could jump on. I mean, I was involved in something in 2016, a scandal about some ticket money for a Brook Golovkin fight. If you Google that, you'll see it, and you'll see people saying I was a con man and a thief and all the rest of it. And, End of the day, you know that's another story. Uh, we could get into it at some point in future. I, su- I suggest not this time because we've been talking you know, a little while yeah. about different things. But I, it's something I'm perfectly prepared to talk about another occasion. But some people will say, "Oh, that's that wanker who stole all the ticket money." You know what I mean? So that's the, that's another story for another day, Simon.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, hopefully we'll have you back on and we can uh, we can talk about all sorts. Um, yep. right, let's I'll try and get through some of these questions now because I'm I just don't want to uh, I don't want to take up too much more of your time. Uh, more than anything, but uh, as I'm, I'm enjoying it, so I'm happy. Um, uh, okay, what well, we got? Uh, Johnny Wish says, uh, "Are you familiar with Gavin Rock Reese?"
0: Of course, I mean I know him yeah. on Facebook. You know, Gavin won everything, didn't he? British, European, yeah. uh, WBA World Light like, Title. He won the Prize Fighter as well, just to, just to add to the trophy cabinet. I mean. Gavin had a, had a fantastic career, really, and he seems like a nice fellow.
1: Yeah, he said, um, if so, what are your opinions of him as a boxer and as a trainer now?
0: As a trainer, I don't really know. But as a boxer, like I say, Gavin won the loss. I know he had, he had a few dedication issues, I think he, he would admit, earlier before he got hold of himself. I think he got into trouble a little bit, you know, probably having a beer, all the rest of it. And getting into the odd fight, not knocking somebody out who perhaps he thought deserved it. So I do remember him having a hiatus to his career because of stuff that was going on outside the ring. Okay. But once he got hold of himself, you know, Gavin had a great engine, was a was a, was a very good boxer. You know, pretty uh, pretty versatile guy. He knew his way around the ring. More of a pressure fighter, an aggressive fighter. Um, and you know, to, to win the WBA title the way he did. Um, he, I mean, he didn't have a long reign or anything like that, but. It's fantastic career that he had you know when um he could have been someone that they'd written off at a certain point um i'm sure he's a good conscientious trainer i don't judge trainers generally unless i've seen him in the gym or had a chance to observe what they're about because you can be surprised some guys got a good reputation and i don't always learn a lot from them other guys you never hear of but i think have got great boxing intellect and got some great methods and they just haven't had the lucky break perhaps so I mean, I think Gavin, no doubt, you know, if he got the same mindset and dedication he had as a fighter, there's no reason why he
1: couldn't excel as a trainer. Uh, but I
0: guess that's a work in progress.
1: Yeah. Um, so Danny Batten, who does, uh, does the fight shows for me, obviously, he was a former Cage Warriors champion. He um, he speaks a lot about fight IQ being, you know, vital uh, in terms of, in some ways, more more important than... Uh, like technical training and drills and things like that, and kind of being able to adapt in the situation if your game plan's not working or and things like yeah. that. And I think uh, you know if you've got trainers in your team or your camp who are have got that about them, which where they think a bit outside the box or they think you know they've got a good mind for boxing or MMA if it's MMA. Where they can come up with different game plans, they can change the game plan mid-fight. I think sometimes I watch, uh, like boxing or MMA, and I see fighters' uh, game plans not working yeah. during a fight, and they don't have, seem to have the ability to to change That's it up. Um, yeah. And to me, that should come from the you know the coaches or the the training uh, staff, whatever you want to call them. I don't know what you feel about like fight IQ as a as a quality coach.
0: I think it's I think it's a massive uh, asset for a coach and and obviously for a boxer because sometimes a boxer does need it naturally and it needs to. Great fighters do tend to make their own adjustments to an extent, although obviously a coach with that chemistry and and an equivalent IQ is a major factor as well. But um, I think um, yeah, they have to be able to read a fight. What I've noticed is sometimes guys are okay. Top level with a good fighter who's winning, but when he gets in a crisis, they don't know what to do because they, when somebody, when the opponent hasn't read the script, maybe I remember thinking Nonito Donaire's trainers didn't have a clue how to what to tell him against uh Guillermo Rigondeo in 2013. He was the emergent superstar of the sport who was winning, who was knocking out everybody. Nonito Donaire, uh, he suddenly is getting his head boxed off by a Cuban genius and they didn't really know what to tell him. And at this point, you realize how redundant they were, and they were just basically people to give you water and Vesely, you know, perhaps I'm being a bit disparaging with that, but I do remember thinking, they don't know what to tell him, now this problem has arrived, you know, and I, I think you do yeah. need to, add, you can't always guarantee, the fighter is going to know, is going to be able to act upon your, um, your advice and your adjustments, but you should at least, know how to advise him of them, you know, and you've got to know the fighter too, because there are certain fighters, who can only do certain things, so the, you, ca- you can't tell them to do one thing, when you know they can't do it, sometimes you've got to go with, what their best bet is, you know, I, th- I think you have to, To be a great trainer, and I have certainly I don't think I'll ever be one because I don't think I have that real mindset or the dedication for it. I think I like the journalism too much. But to be a great trainer, I think you have to have that kind of multifaceted boxing IQ and ability, not just to see the game plan and what is required, but to know whether your fighter can do it or not, never mind how to play the psychology games with him.
1: Indeed. Um, So... In your opinion, and to the best of your knowledge, uh, JD wants to know who you think is the best out-and-out boxing coach in the world at the moment. Uh, he says uh, not necessarily a trainer, but an actual uh, out-and-out coach.
0: It's very difficult, Simon, because I think trainers, there's a lot of mystique around the trainer's arts. And I think I always remember Angelo and D saying, I'm only as good as the guy in the stool. I also remember Freddie Roach saying I didn't make 22 world champions when that was his total, which was a while ago. He said 22 world champions made me. That is a major factor. At the end of the day, the fighter's the one who's got to go and do it. We should never forget that. But the best trainer in the world right now, um, I mean, I think think Freddie Roach, uh, I just mentioned, is is a great trainer who's got a proven CV. Uh, I think Jimmy Tibbs, as far as Britain concerns, I still think he's our greatest coach with the greatest body of work. If I was boxing, I would probably want Jimmy with me um, still. You know, from, from, from a British angle, I think um, I think Freddie Roach probably takes some beating because some of the, some of the, some of his kind of contemporaries have, have, have passed away in the last several years, like Emmanuel Stewart. Um, who else is really good today? I mean, I think Ben Davison is a good coach. He's obviously a young coach coming up, but I think he's got a fantastic boxing IQ and I think he will continue to excel and distinguish himself. Nacho Beristan uh, in the States is a good coach. Uh, Vassil Lomachenko's dad is good at training Vassil Lomachenko um, and he's probably a very good coach. I'm trying to think who else is... I'll come up with Beristan Roach. Jimmy Tibbs is retired now, by the way. He just does a bit of cut work with the likes of Shane McGuigan. But okay. when he was, Jimmy Tibbs, when he was still active, was I was so was a Britain's greatest coach.
1: Cool. And is there a coach which kind of springs to mind who can think outside the box? Maybe not do the the kind of usual uh, training drills or usual tactics. Someone who just completely thinks differently to everyone else. Is there someone who springs I to mind? It-
0: I think it was Brendan Ingle when he was alive you know when he was active uh, that fantastic le- legacy created at Sheffield which kind of started with Harold Bomber Graham and culminated with Prince Nassim Hamed the Ingles you know the, if you ever get known for having your own style your own blueprint your own branding boxing pe- people to this day still study the Ingle style or they say I think he'd be good with the Ingles because he's loose-limbed and an orthodox and he's a switch hitter I think he'd suit the Ingle methods the Ingle style so brendan was absolutely an outside the box guy you know um i think uh howard rainey an old trainer who not everybody would have heard of but he trained colin mcmillan most famously sweet to see he was a bit of a boffin and an inventor who wasn't afraid to think outside the box um we know customato had his own blueprint which was quite distinctive which we saw with jose torres Floyd patterson and mike tyson uh today a kind of more outside the box coach um you know what, I like, I mean, I'd, some of these conditioners, um, like Mackie Charleston, who was the guy who helped Michael Spinks put on 25 pounds of muscle to fight Larry Holmes in 1985. But even in later years, he worked with Roy Jones to balk him up to heavyweight to beat John Ruiz. And he worked with uh, Bernard Hopkins to balk him up to like heavyweight when he beat Antonio Tava. He seems a very interesting guy. You know, when he had a different take, some of those new methods he brought in using sprints. Uh, he, he, We thought in the 80s, when, when Michael Spinks was went from 175 pounds to 200 pounds. We thought with our ignorance then that it must mean he would be slow and sluggish and maybe putting on a bit of fat. And he said, no, Michael's body fat is lower now than it was when he was a light heavyweight. As a 15-year-old, that blew my mind, to be honest with you, uh, because I thought, because I had never heard that before. And they said he was no. doing a lot of sprints. You know, why train for a marathon when you need 15 three-minute bursts because there were 15 rounders still those days. So a guy like Mackie Charleston is a conditioning guru I'm very interested in. Kerry Kay's in later years of Ricky Hatton. Seemed to be, uh, not necessarily outside the box in terms of his own industry, but brought ideas outside the box from boxing. Yeah. Ricky, Ricky Hatton did a lot of sure. weight training, drank a hell of a lot of fluid, and none of that old-school rubbish about don't drink water, like Chris Eubank would go without a drink for like a week and all that rubbish. So I'd uh, say yeah. Kerry Kays, guys like that. Uh, what's the guy, Alex Ariza was another guy who's yeah. a controversial figure, of course, because of the rumours of Peds and, and Manny Pacquiao and all that. But on, on the conditioning side, I'd say uh, Alex Ariza and Kerry Kays in recent years, uh, in the boxing side... I don't I can't think of any Mavericks around on the boxing side today. I must admit I think but guys like Brendan Ingle certainly were.
1: Cool. I like Not it. guys
0: like him, just just Brendan
1: on his own. Yeah. No, I like it. I like it. Um okay, so uh there was that one which you sent me earlier which was uh someone said uh, they'd like to know at what point in your life boxing transformed from a hobby to an obsession.
0: Just overnight basically. Uh, I But certainly after the first training session, anyway, Simon. I mean, I was into it as a kid. I watched Muhammad Ali. That was my hero when I was a a little boy. I had boxing gloves at the time, four-ounce gloves. I used to spar with my dad, who'd get on his knees and spar. I've heard a few people tell a similar story. I guess dads, generally, unless they are midgets, tend to have to do that. They want to spar with their infant sons, you know. So I guess I'm not the only one. Um, yeah, and um, but as soon as I went, I started boxing officially on January the 8th, 1980, at the inaugural night opening of Roxburgh House ABC Youth Club, Stroud. It was a new ABA club. They made a bit of a fuss of the launch of a new ABA club. They brought lots of officials down. They brought famous, notable boxers from the region. Most famous and well-known was Peter Hanlon, who went on to captain the 1980 Olympic team as a featherweight, uh, was an ABA champion, a Commonwealth Games silver medal winner. I got to spar with Pete Hanlon that night for the cameras, for the local papers, and there was a picture of me in the Gloucester Citizen and the Australian News and Journal landing a left jab to Hanlon's stomach. And with the little bit of notoriety, you know, that was, my first note, that was my first experience of coverage. I was hooked, to be honest with you. And from then on, I started reading books from the library, uh, books that I was bought for by, you know, parents and stuff, relatives. Yeah. And I became... By the time I was eleven, I was a kind of unassailable historian. You know, you know people had start talking about know, like Joe Lewis and Jack Johnson, and I would pull rank. And, they, and Eventually, before before very long, they were saying, "Don't argue with him because he'll end up being right." It was it was harder then. You know, we didn't have Google. We did. You could, the annoying thing really then was you couldn't prove people are wrong unless you carried all these books with you. Yeah, like the, the, you know, you couldn't just tell them they were talking rubbish because you had to go home and get the book and bring it back. But I was, I was, I was, yeah, I was obsessed from the age of ten onwards. As soon as I went in that gym really
1: Sam i got to say like it's incredible your 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 boxing like knowledge but also like your ability to like it's like a like an encyclopedia of boxing yeah just to access it Um, incredible memory Um, so uh, Alan Jones of uh, Away Day Apparel asks uh, he said he'd like to hear you discuss the career of Joe Calzaghi. Uh, he keeps saying that uh, he came into the weight division of choice. Uh, you can only fight... Because I've been saying a lot recently where we've covered the Joe Kazagi fights to to Alan as well. I've been saying, you can only fight what's in front of you. Um, so like, uh, that when he fought Roy Jones Jr., that was the Roy Jones Jr. that was in front of him. Same with Hopkins. Now, yeah. obviously, it could have been a different story if they had met earlier in their careers. But at that point... Uh, Joe had to fight them as they were, um, and Alan says, "Would Joe have beaten, you know, Eubank, Ben Collins, Watson in their primes?" Uh, he said Joe Kazaki called Roy Jones out for years, but wouldn't step up to fight him at light heavyweight when Jones was the champion. Yeah. Uh, he also talks. Uh, Joe talks about his fight with J- uh, Jeff Lacey as his best performance, but Alan thinks that it was his fight versus Kel- uh, Kessler which was the yeah the turning point and the, when he became the new prospect and he says discuss
0: yeah i mean i agree with him about kessler because i think kessler was a better fighter than lacey lacey was very hyped up had a big reputation they were calling him like you know they, they were likening him to a kind of mike tyson type figure mm. i think he was a little overrated as you know but it was still a you know you give joe major props for doing what he did to him it was it was a beautiful performance it was just so so aesthetically it was so fantastic you know the, the skills and the the exhibitionism and the sheer glee that was that was Joe's coming out party when he suddenly said this is what I can do baby and the whole world's going to take notice of oh, yeah. of the sheer manner of my mastery in that ring you know Joe was doing something I've never seen anybody do actually when the eyes are, uh, is, a, is an orthodox he's a left hooker right so Lacey's trying the left hook and Joe being a southpaw so the left hook's near to his Joe's lead hand he was rolling underneath that left hook and hitting him with an, with an uppercut on the chin I could demonstrate this if I wasn't holding this selfie stick to keep the camera yeah. In, but yeah um, it, it was just amazing stuff that Joe was doing in there And uh, but no Kester was a better more solid fighter I, th- I do think that's a better win the Hopkins win I think is a great win still because look what Hopkins achieved afterwards you can't say Hopkins was washed up just because he was old because Hopkins is uh, an anomaly and a uh, freak of nature I'm not even going to say Hopkins was past his prime, you know what, because I don't necessarily believe Hopkins was any more I, I don't think he was in his prime when 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 Bernard fought Roy Jones, I think he was too green and too young, you know, so uh, major props for the, it was an ugly fight with Hopkins and it was a close fight, but I do think Joe won it, I think he nicked it, quite simply, um, the Roy Jones fight was kind of meaningless, but it was I guess it was closure for Joe you know, it was a bit of a sad spectacle from a, from a Jones point of view, I think Joe Joe's quite honest and says that he might not have in Roy Jones when he was really zenith but you know what you can't write joe off because he's a supreme competitor he never lost he did have elite historical skills i think he'd have been problem for anybody in any era joe would have once had to choose between middleweight and light heavy there would have been no mess there would have been no mid-ground in another era john Conte's era let's say freddie mills era so it would have been harder for joe if he'd have come around in another era when things were a bit less kind of streamlined with the wbo university the ibf universe the, w- the, RBF universe, the- I know Joe did eventually clear up and collect all those belts, but you know he deserves his place in the Hall of Fame. He's he is one of the greatest British fighters we've had, and he and I do think he he has an argument to be in the greatest super middleweight of all time. At least he has that argument. So, you know, um, he um, I th- suspect he probably wouldn't have beaten Roy Jones if they fought in let's say two thousand. But I do getting back to the, the first part of the question, I think he'd have always beaten Eubank and Ben and Collins because I think he was better fighter than they were and I think he was I think he would have adapted like you spoke about that ability certain great fighters we spoke about have the
1: ability to do that
0: yeah. I think Joe I would have backed him against Eubank, Ben, and Collins but yeah I would anytime
1: I, yeah, One of the things when we when we watched the the Roy Jones Jr. fight back which really struck me was I had forgotten how one-sided it was like the the judges on the scorecard gave the first two rounds to Roy Jones, but I think Calzaghe comfortably won every single round. And I was trying to think yeah. of, if I could remember another fight where uh, it had gone twelve rounds and a fi- one fighter had won every round, and I couldn't really remember one. Is there? Can you think of a fight where that's happened? Where yeah, it's gone I mean, full I saw... distance, but. Yeah,
0: I could think of a few. Shut, we call it a
1: shutout in American boxing terms. They call it
0: shutout, right? Okay. Um, I think um, Billy Joe Saunders against um, David Lemieux for for a more recent example. I think Billy Joe might have won every round in that fight. I think Floyd Mayweather versus a few people. I think against Canelo, maybe I gave Canelo a share of the first round. After that, I think Floyd won every round. Arguably. Mm. Um, what else? Uh, shutouts yeah, over the course of history. I think um, there is another one that springs to mind here somewhere. Um, Perhaps it will come to me.
1: But I mean, just with that Joe Kazaki fight, while you are uh, racking your brains, uh, yeah. I thought you know Joe Kazaki. I thought his performance was very good. Uh, you know, he, you can only fight what's in front of you. Like I said, um, but did, did
0: did Joshua lose around to Ruiz? Second time, maybe
1: we'll not. I don't know. Probably it it, it was
0: in that kind of ballpark of one hundred and twenty, one hundred and eight, wasn't it? I mean, it was. Yeah. He, like you say, I, I'd have to watch it again. You'd have to watch it again, but mm. it was approaching that kind of shutout, I think.
1: Indeed. Uh, okay. What else we got? Uh, let's have a look. Uh, Neil Park asked on Facebook, "He uh, wouldn't hear you talk about the out of control nature of manufactured." Manufactured fighters, sorry. Or did, or
0: did he say fighters or belts? Uh, oh,
1: sorry, manufactured manufactured champions.
0: Yeah, yeah, sorry. exactly. Uh, meaning the championship status. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Neil knows me reasonably well on social media, whatever. I think it has gotten out of control inevitably. I think we've got to a point. Quoting Bob Aram again, he once said that eventually they will destroy themselves. He said, "I hope there's I hope there's ten world titles and it, and and." He said the reason why is because I think they will ruin their credibility the more they uh, multiply and pr- pr- proliferate. So, uh, you know, I mean, initially I remember we thought it was ridiculous the advent of the IBF. There was a, we, we got news in the early '80s to the to the WBA and WBC. We were kind of okay with that, although some of the old school veterans said it was ridiculous having more than one world champion. Then we got the IBF, which seemed very spurious at the time, particularly when they. We saw the advent of the super middleweight division, which we thought was a division too many, whatnot. You know, we got used to it. The IBF became legitimized. The WBO seemed like the poor relation for a while, but then they gained ground. You know, with guys like uh, Nigel Benn was the first WBO champion from Britain that I remember. Then you got a guy like Nassim Hamed who won the WBO belt and really helped to create this notion that it was a proper title. You got yeah. other guys like Barrera win it you know, and uh, and eventually you got to a point certainly in the 21st century and the WBO had as many quality title holders as the rest of them had. There's a traditional belief that the WBC is the best, but I think that's a load of nonsense. I think that's spurious now. I think you've got to judge on the merit of the fighters. But, you know, so we ended up getting four world titles, four world champions at every weight pretty much across the board except in rare cases of, uh, you know, unifications which were very hard to keep together once that even you might unify, but you try holding both those titles and satisfying both obligations you, you can't do it. And that they might want to unify for the economic value short term, but sooner sooner or later they're going to want their titles back and divided because they're not they don't want to share the sanctioning fees. You know. So anyway, uh, then you have got the ludicrous nature then of uh, getting the WBA started to break up their world titles at the same weight division. They started saying we've got a super champion, an interim champion, a champion emeritus, or a regular champion. So then you started getting the, this notion that you had more than four world champions at the same weight. And you may have up to six people. Do you know Trevor Bryan is technically the WBA regular heavyweight champion in the world? Or he certainly was, last time I could be bothered to look. Now, he would struggle to get arrested, you know, if he set himself on fire outside of the White House. You know, so it, it is ridiculous, you know, it, it is ridiculous. Um, and Crazy I think enough. inevitably people win World... But do you know what the trade-off is? People win more titles, it's less of a big deal now. People line the streets in their thousands to, you know, greet Baron McGuigan when he came home or Randolph Turpin in 1951 when he beat the great Sugar Robinson. These days, it is a bit more of a... It's seen as less of an achievement. You've got guys like Ricky Burns who has won world titles at three weights. No disrespect to Ricky, but he would never... He he, he couldn't possibly have achieved that, I don't think, in, in a 30 years before now, you know, or, or earlier. So... I think it's out of control, but what are you supposed to do? You know, Simon, there's an argument from other people, particularly insiders or fans who want to seem like they're clued up, when they say as long as fighters are making more money, I'm okay with it. But to me, that is so spurious because what it's saying is, you know, a fight is a fight and it should have an organic value. What you're saying is the the audience is so bloody ignorant that they don't understand the difference, they don't know. So you can can lie to them, essentially. That's what it's saying. I mean, I would have thought if boxing could just be popular, as popular as it can possibly be, if we market fights over fighters and personalities, perhaps, even though I'm not saying personalities aren't good and they're not important, you know, like Tyson Fury, but if we would market the quality of the product more and show that's all people really care about is good, exciting fights, you can't have them every day. You can't, you can't have them every week. Barry Hearn said, you know, listen, sometimes it's an ordinary day at work, sometimes it's a special day at work, but with special days come special payments. I get that. But I, I do think that most people reasonably neutral would agree that the proliferation of world titles in boxing has gotten a little bit beyond the joke to the point where the fans certainly don't know who is the who is the main man and i think that's a shame you know and i don't believe that that fighters can't make money and good revenue without that i I think we could have a more integral sense of a world number one and we could still have a commercial rewards across the board. i I would like to think anyway you know i mean maybe some of these things are wrong
1: like i'd argue that if you had uh one one belt for each weight division with maybe like a an interim champion as well at certain points that having one belt would make it all mean more yeah of which course which would, would in turn increase the commercial value because being the world champion would mean you are the world champion for your weight so absolutely um, there's
0: that side to it as well. Yeah, I think you're right, you know, and, and what's to say we couldn't have big, you know, high-grossing, non-title fights, but ultra-meaningful yeah. fights. What it is, Simon, there's no such thing as a contender anymore, okay? we Because everybody's a champion of some sort and has some kind of hardware because that's how you market yourself these days without the trinkets and it happens in a white collar, you know, white collar, there was a program the other night about white collar boxing that was kind of trying to cast it in a bad light but, you know, they win their fake belts, so do the unlicensed kids. And some of them realize it's a bit of fun, some of them are getting seriously guessed, and they think they they think there's something they're not, you know, so you're right, you know i mean it, it it's it of course it would have more value if it wasn't so bogusly replicated all the time you know there's no there's no. there used to be honor and ability in being a contender, and there used to yeah. be also revenue. you were at the top of the upper echelons and you could still had good earning capacity in a certain ballpark, you know, so there are no contenders anymore really because Almost everybody gets to call himself a world champion of some sort if they if they got to a world level
1: indeed uh, okay I've got a couple more questions and then I'll leave you be uh, so uh, let's have a look. okay Peaches wants to know is David Hay as arrogant in real life as he seems on TV as he seems like a massive prick <laughs> do
0: you know what funny you should say that peaches. I've never warmed to David Hay. I, I've met most people in British boxing, certainly, and, and, and many of the people in world boxing on my travels for my sins as a kind of general social media interviewer, hustler. And uh, I don't warm to David Hay. I've never actually spoke to him and I've never asked him for a picture. I've, I've got pictures with most people. The loomeries are great and good, you know, which I, I like to have for my little collection. Some of them are more treasured than others. I mean, the only ones actually up in my house where I am now is Way Leonard, Mike Tyson, marvin Hagler and tommy hearns i do want to put more up but i haven't got to it but anyway uh hey i've never got a picture with Hay. i've never i've never bothered interviewing him although i've had the opportunity at press conferences and i don't really warm to him no I, I can't fully tell you what it is and i'm not saying i couldn't change my mind but i david hay is one of the few people one of the few fighters i don't feel very um well disposed towards um I remember one time he he, he took a picture with it with a, with a, there's a friend of mine a, a young lady who does a bit of white collar boxing who's a, a, a close friend of mine and she wanted a picture with him and he seemed a bit disinterested to the point where, where I was taking a picture and at one point I said to him look at the camera then because he looked like he was almost looking the other way and I I don't get a good vibe off David Hay but that doesn't mean I, I may have it wrong I can't I can't I can't you know um, assassinate his character or write him off because I don't really know him but I don't. Yeah, I, I I feel that question anyway, yeah.
1: So, like, basically, definitely, he hasn't necessarily done anything to kind of make you dislike him as such, but you haven't warmed to him either.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and that's weird, because normally I would have made a beeline for him.
1: Yeah. Okay. Um, okay, let's have a look. Uh, what's your views on Welsh boxer Cody Davis? Many, many in Wales believe that he has the ability and the temperament to go all the way and be... Uh, one of the t- t- next big star in Wales. Yeah, I
0: mean, I know he, he I know Gavin Reese trains him. He he looks good. He's passed the tests he's faced so far. I, I like the I like the look of him. The couple of times I've seen him, I also get uh, updated on his training because Gavin will post stuff like any conscientious boxing person these days. You know, updates their journey and what they're up to, and it, I mean, he always looks incredibly ripped, Cody. Like it looks like he trains very hard. Yeah. He's always in fantastic condition, and he, he looks like a pretty decent, you know, box fighter to me, uh, Cody. I think you know you sure could have could have high hopes for him.
1: Uh, Robbie Regan, also, how good was he?
0: You know what? He probably gets one of the more underrated Welsh champions. I mean, he he was a two-weight world champion. His memory serves. I met Robbie one time in 2016. We didn't.
1: So it looks like you've
0: disappeared here.
1: Where did you go? Ah, you're back. There you go. Go on, just go from uh, Robbie Regan.
0: Yeah, look, I like disappeared there. Robin, yeah, I met him in 2016, and uh, we did an interview for Boxing Social. When Boxing Social didn't have any interviews, they basically I was the only person doing any. The brand was just launching, and they didn't use it for whatever reason. Maybe the same quality, but we 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 interviewed him in a hotel in. I interviewed him in a hotel in Kensington somewhere. And uh, you know, I think he—he he was a good fighter, Robbie. Once again, if he was a bigger guy, he'd a bit more of a star, no doubt. Uh, you know, but he was—I mean, I guess he carried Welsh boxing for a little little while in the early nineties, was the mid nineties. You know. Um, yeah. Uh, so yeah, I think he probably—I think he should probably get more plaudits claw- and props than he does, Robbie. Good fighter.
1: Yeah, we—I um, uh, had him on a show actually a couple of weeks back. Uh, he did an episode of My Story with him. Um, the sound was a uh, well, It wasn't great in that, fairly enough. But um, but uh, it, you know, it was good enough that you can hear what he's saying and stuff. But um, yeah. he's a really, uh, he's quite similar to you in that he's got his his uh, his boxing boxing memory recollection is really impressive, uh, particularly when it yeah. comes to, to his fights. You know, he can kind of name the dates and the the venues straight off the top of his head. Um, he's really you know, he had a really interesting career and uh, did very well. Um, okay uh, uh gaz was wants to know uh, how would you react or feel if a male fighter transitioned to be a female fighter uh, and went through all the process of like the legal side of it and the uh, operations and things like this uh, and then began fighting against women like uh, yeah, against female fighters i think you'd have to
0: have I think you'd have to have an issue with it, wouldn't you? Um,
1: Alexandra Jimenez, the WBC,
0: I believe, super middleweight female champion, was accused of that recently. Okay. Some people said that was just ignorance, just because she looks a bit butch, and you know, and the whole mm-hmm. kind of stereotypes of the dyke and all that. They said that she's actually fathered a, uh, a, a you know, a daughter. Sorry, fathered. A, how fraudulent was that? that? She's actually. They said she'd actually had a daughter. Um, and, you know, it was proven that she was a woman. She was biologically a woman. And just because she looks muscular, but just because she might look a bit masculine, it doesn't mean that she used to be a man. You know, but I know. So I think a former opponent was trying to uh, accuse her of having transitioned, which obviously that former opponent has a vested interest and an angle in it and is biased because of it because she lost to her. But uh, but suppose it really happened. I, th- I don't think you could be in favour of it. I, um, no. no. I um, <laughs> I'd have to say so- no.
1: Like, look. look um, funny enough, we ended up discussing this a bit on the fight show last week. Um, my, look, my only issue is it is with it is just like I wouldn't want to see a like a male uh, MMA fighter go and take down a female MMA fighter, get her in full mount and the ground and pound yeah. and start or kick her in the face. I don't want to watch that. It's not my type of thing. I just it's not something which i don't want to watch so how can i then be comfortable watching a, a a male who's transitioned to be a female do the same now i'm not saying that they we shouldn't accept them as a you know as a, a female transgender person in any way people, box. Can, people can do whatever they want but when it comes to fighting yeah. i just think you can't do that you know male uh, male body types are different the they're stronger, more muscular. They're quicker. Um, it's yeah. an unfair advantage, and you, you're talking something you know. Someone could really, uh, really get hurt uh, in that situation, um, and that's without even discussing things about you know testo, testosterone levels and stuff like that. Um, yeah. There was a there was a a male uh, uh, sorry a female uh, MMA fighter who had transitioned called Fallon Fox uh, a couple of years back and she didn't inform her opponents that she had previously or she had transitioned from being male so i think she had about 2 or 3 fights where she was destroying the division she was on this big winning streak and the first few fights she took she hadn't told her opponents that she had you know previously been uh, a male um, and and i like to me that's a that's that's a real real issue like you have to, if there's, it's female a bit worse fighters, than
0: not declaring your record,
1: yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean. Like if there's female fighters who are happy to take that fight, then great. But you have to give them the opportunity to to make that informed decision. You can't not tell yeah. them because you know, that's terrifying in, in terms of you know what could happen when you, especially in MMA where you've got things like chokes and kicks and yeah. knees and elbows, which is, it's, brings up all sorts of. Um, the word like moral uh,
0: quandaries, <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. It's, it's a difficult one because I, I don't care what people do with their lives, you know. If they can be whatever they want to be, no, but it doesn't mean that, you know, I want to see it in the f- in from a fighting point of view. Just like I wouldn't want to see, you know, a husband beat up their wife or a girlfriend or whatever, it's, no. Okay, Indeed. Uh So last three questions. Uh, and I again, I will thank you again for your time, mate. I really appreciate you giving me so of much of your time. Um, is uh, would or was Muhammad Ali good enough to fight in any era of boxing?
0: Hell yes. Uh, you know, interestingly, George Foreman once said, "I could have been a fighter in any era," whereas Muhammad Ali couldn't. He said because Ali needed to wait for boxing to get a little bit more civilized before his style would have worked. So obviously, you know, George Foreman saw himself. Competing equitably in Jack Johnson or Jack Dempsey's era, which no doubt Big George absolutely could have done, but I think Ali could have done too. I think mean, he did have a, he had a revolutionary style to a degree, but it was informed by the likes of uh, you know Roy Robinson and even guys before him like Gene Tunney and uh, Billy Conn and Willie Pep had similar style, more similar styles than you might imagine to Ali's kind of jab and move approach. But no, Ali, I, I do think Ali was the greatest heavyweight of all time based on his uh, body of work, strength of his body of work. And I think he compares favourably head-to-head with any of them. So absolutely, yes.
1: Indeed. Um, and final final question. Uh, who are the most overrated and underrated, underrated fighters on the current scene? Overrated and underrated. OK. Um,
0: overrated, underrated. Un- Who's overrated right now? I think um, I was going to say Errol Spence might might not be quite as good as some people think he is to, to say overrated sounds disrespectful when it sounds yeah. like you're coming from a kind of trolling angle. But uh, see, so yeah, I would have said Errol Spence if he was flying high and things were normal. The fact that he had a near, you know, a life-threatening crash, and now we're in a global mm. pandemic, it's so much harder to to see anybody as being at their absolute zenith. Isn't it. We don't know. Yeah. We don't know when boxing's coming back, and we don't know when Errol Spence is coming back. I might have thought I would have picked Terence Crawford over Errol Spence, for instance, on that basis. I, but I don't think Crawford is underrated. For the flip side of that question, because I think most people realize how good he is. Who, who is a truly underrated fighter right now? I mean, I. I don't. See, I don't want him to see this, but I think Dylan White's... not saying he's overrated. And my mate Mark Tibbs trains him, so this could be, you know... I'm, I'm not sure if Dylan... Dylan gets... A, the fans like him, and he gets a lot of props. But I don't think he beat Anthony Joshua in a rematch. And I don't think... People say, what's he got to do to get a world title? I don't... You know what? He was offered a world title shot for whatever reason. He didn't, he didn't want to accept the economic terms for, with Anthony Joshua back in April... Um, in uh, Wembley in that date that was being scrapped and and then Big Baby Miller got the shot and in the end he he tested positive and then John Ruiz got the shot the rest is history so to say that Dylan's been overlooked like he's some kind of Sonny Liston type figure the uncrowned champion I don't think is entirely fair so I'm not saying Dylan's overrated as a fighter but I think the perception of his plight is a little overrated and I think some people think that he would beat Andy Josh in a rematch whereas I tend to think not so that um assuming you're not going to go with big bold headlines bent out says Dylan white most overrated fighter in no. the country that's what that, that's what I've said organically i've just said it
1: <laughs> yeah no I um, said most underrated
0: what most underrated you still want that most underrated yes, fighter yes. Um, let's go through the divisions lie. I would you know what I would have once said it no, no, yeah, in, in UA a little while ago, but I think he's getting the props now, you know. Mm. Um, top ever, I mean, Vassil Lomachenko gets plenty of props, Sorkinello Alvarez gets plenty of props when you think of the best fighters in the world. Uh, Yusik gets plenty of props, so they're all really out there now. I would have said not, no, in Neway, but I think he's rectified that. Nobody springs to mind to me who's chronically underrated right now who should be getting those props, unless it might come to me afterwards. Yeah, okay, fair enough.
1: Yeah, um, and that's uh, That's pretty much all the questions. There's a couple of questions which I didn't get to just because they were kind of either repeating something which we'd already talked about. Yeah. Um, so I apologise to anyone who feels that... The, if, if I did miss anyone, send them to me again and I, I we'll will... We'll do it again. We'll do it again. I'm sure we'll have you back on. But uh, Ben, thank you so much for joining me, mate. I really appreciate it. Uh, tell Thanks the people definitely. where they can find you on... Uh, Social media, YouTube, wherever, wherever yeah, you want I will. Them to go.
0: Absolutely, I will do it. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was nice. It was nice to break the ice in this way. And I, if you if you like to continue with some kind of dialogue, I'll be, I'll be well up for it.
1: Yeah, yeah, cool. Yeah, I'm up for that. That's all, mate. Um, so, guys, you can follow us uh, YouTube.com/slash Ace Podcast Nation. Uh, you can find the audio versions or all the usual places. Uh, we put out at least four shows a week at the moment. Some some weeks we're putting now, five or six. Uh, because we've got so got a lot of shows backlogged and stuff. Uh, next week, we've got the former lead singer of The Farm coming on. Uh, some footballers, ex-Cardiff City players. Everything you need. Live football show every Monday. Live comedy show every Friday. Fight show every Wednesday. And uh, new shows every single Sunday. New guests. And uh, we will see you next time. Again, Ben, thank you ever so much for your time, mate.
0: Thanks mate. See you soon.